Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Screen Geeks Radio, episode 162. This is Dave. This is Special Agent Dale Cooper. This is uh, Harold. I guess I should have said I was the log lady or something, huh? Yeah. Oh, well. No, no. you'd be James, Dave. Oh, thanks. Nice, oh, James. As long, vroom, as, vroom. as long as it's not Bobby. Bob, Bob. What? Oh, oh, do you mean? Oh, do you mean the high schooler? Yeah, Bobby? the douchebag. The douchebag. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll Bobby's get okay. We'll get to this on the show, but I think the reason why I'm so excited for this episode is all the impressions of the characters I'm going to get to do. <laughs> yeah, right on. I, I got the man from from another place. That's like the one impression <laughs> I do. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, th- this is going to be interesting. This is going to be pretty heavy on the, the topic and light on a lot of other stuff. So, which is okay. Uh, let's start off with what we watched this past week or so. Ethan, do you want to do your your TIFF brief discussion real quick right off the bat, or do you want to wait? Sure, I'll I'll do it right now. Okay. Uh, okay first thing I saw was Hardcore Logo Two, the sequel to Hardcore Logo, the classic uh, Canadian film. Which was basically the Canadian Spinal Tap. Okay. And uh, this, the thing about this is, it's interesting, is that it's very different from that because spoilers for Hardcore Logo, the ending is uh, the main member of the band, Joe Dick, killing himself on screen. <laughs> so the sequel is about uh, Bruce McDonald, who's a director. It's kind of it's saying it's presenting a Hardcore Logo as reality, and basically he moved to Hollywood, became big, doing this TV show. And that's pretty funny, and he's like the main character. But then he hears that uh, the spirit of Joe Dick has possessed like this like goth like punk girl, <laughs> and uh, basically he goes to like find her and stuff. And they like uh, and they bring back some other characters from the first movie. And for the most part, it's it's pretty good. Like it, it definitely had some funny moments, and then some of the music was pretty good. So I, I'd uh, recommend it. See the first one, obviously, but it's very different from the first one, though. So. Uh, next, I saw Tyrannosaur. This is a movie, a British movie that's been getting a lot of buzz. It's the uh, directorial debut of Patty Considine, the uh, actor you know from Hot Fuzz and In America and Dead Man's Shoes. Yeah, nice. And it stars uh, Peter Mulan, who's this absolutely amazing British actor. Part of the reason I wanted to see the movie, he's been in like Boy A and the Red Riding trilogy and Shallow Grave. Like his credits are crazy, and uh, he's like this kind of widowed like abusive alcoholic, not alcoholic man, and he uh, strikes up a friendship with this lady who's in a, an abusive relationship, and she's played by Olivia Coleman, I think her name is, and she's also from Hot Fuzz. She played uh, one of the members of the, uh, one of the police women. And, is she the uh, main one? She's amazing, and her husband's played by Eddie Marsan, who's in a lot of Mike Lee films, and he's absolutely amazing in the movie. Cool. And like I'm saying, all the performances in it are amazing. Like I was blown away by them. But the movie, honestly, is I thought was pure misery porn. Okay. Like I thought it was like bigger misery porn than like beautiful. All right then, mm. don't hold back now. So it's one of those things where the, the performances are great, but the, the rest of the film just kind of gets in the way. Yeah, like uh, this is kind of a spoiler for the movie. But I'll just say it anyway. Okay, one of the first scenes in the movie where we're introduced to Eddie Marsan's character is uh, Olivia Coleman. She's fallen asleep on the couch. He comes into the house. He sees her. And what does he do? He pees on her. Wow. That's a happiness. Yeah. Right? That's happiness right there. Right now, Tom says, yeah. like, why didn't I think of that? You <laughs> wouldn't And I, I stay for the Q&A with uh, Patty Considine after just because I'm a fan of the guy. And I like, and I respect what he made with the movie, and I think he shows some directorial talent. But 
again, I just I just struggled with the movie, and I usually support movies like this, but I I kind of just could see the misery just seeping through the pores, so to speak. Hmm. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, next, I saw Todd Salon's new film, Dark Horse. Wow, how is it? it uh, I don't. Know, I'm so mixed on this movie. I really don't even know what I feel because it's uh, about this guy. He's like late thirties, fat, receding hairline. He still lives with his parents. Um, he basically his room is like decked out with like Simpsons and Gremlins toys. So he's like a total man child, and um, he meets this woman played by uh, Selma Blair at a wedding. And he asks her out, and he asks uh, her to marry him, like, after the first date. And it kind of goes from there. And the weird thing in the movie is just because it, it, it at once it's his probably most successful movie in that a lot of the humor in it is just extremely broad. Like, it feels at times like it could be like a Kevin James or Adam Sandler movie. But at the same time, there is a very, there's very, like, dark themes in it, and it is, ends in a real downer. Though another problem I kind of had with the lead actor, he I think he wasn't like a like he has some experience, but I I he seemed very kind of self aware in comparison to like his parents are played by Christopher Walken and Mia Farrow, who are you know amazing actors, and just to me putting them against him, it felt a little like, eh. but uh, I'd say it's worth seeing just because it it does have a lot of ideas, but it's just I don't know I can't I'm still thinking trying to decipher what I thought of it. It's it's definitely, I think, his worst film, hmm. but it is interesting. So I'm glad I saw it. Interesting. Uh, next, I checked out Violet and Daisy. It's the uh, directorial debut of the writer of Precious. Oh, wow. Not Sapphire, the guy who wrote this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is, is it near as realistic as Precious was? No, it's like completely different. It's about these two teenage girl hitmen or hit women played by a uh, Saoirse Ronan and Alexis Bledel, hmm. who are sent on a mission to kill this guy, played by James Gandolfini. And now I picked this movie just because it was at a good time. I you said that it was a directorial debut of the writer of Precious, but it sounded a lot different from that, so it maybe it'd be interesting. I liked Saoirse Ronan. I was like, I'll check it out. And no, it, it was pretty... That was not the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it feels like a, the kind of movie that would have come out in like 1996. Oh, one of those post Pulp Fiction movies, like yeah, love, yeah. Love in a forty five. They even do like and... the they even do like the chapters and the, uh, the yeah. Um, yeah. and like the pop culture referencing dialogue, and it's just like want to be QT. Yep. Yeah, so I I'm just trying to forget I even saw that. <laughs> okay, you had a you 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 had some real winners there, sir. Yeah, and the last thing I saw, which was the best I saw, was this movie called uh, Kill List. Have you guys heard of it? Killness, no. Kill List. Oh, Kill List. Yes, I have heard of that. Yeah, yeah, pretty good. Yeah, this movie, it's because I didn't, because I, I heard about it, but I kind of just tried to not read very much because I heard it, like, really took a weird direction. And it does, because the first two acts are this, like, it's like a Hitman movie. It's, it's and But the thing about it is there's something very unnerving about it the whole time. Like, the opening scene is this kind of, like, big domestic argument of, like, a, like the wife screaming, Aah! and stuff and it just kept this very tense mood throughout the whole movie and in the third act it takes this turn like a horror turn and it uh, i'll say it's kind of like another classic british horror movie i won't say anything else and uh, again it sort of comes out of nowhere 
but thinking about the movie more, it kind of makes sense. But, but it is like really just incredibly brutal. Like the last, I mean, in a good way, the last act. And it really kind of knocked me on my ass, off my ass, on my ass, off my ass. I'm not sure. What I think on is. your ass is the yeah. Yeah, on or my on ass. And, and, uh, and it was just funny because when the movie ended, there was just sort of like this uncomfortable silence, and people like just a ton of them just like got up and just like with their heads like hanging, just like walked out of the theater. And uh, the director was there for a Q&A afterwards. The questions weren't very good. But, yeah, I was quite impressed by it. Right on. Very cool. I, I will say, I'm kind of like, because something I want to mention is that TIFF, they play, like, because they have all these sponsors, they play probably the same five ads before every movie. And by, like, the fifth movie, I was, like, getting pretty tired of seeing the ad with Adam McGoin in it or the Grace <laughs> Kelly at the, at the Lightbox ad. And I like I'm trying to think of people who like there are people who see like 50 movies at TIFF. Mm. Like I would have gone <laughs> crazy had I seen that probably by like the 20th movie. I would just like lose it. But Fair actually, enough. one more interesting thing to bring up is uh, Toronto. They have the new installed it came last year the uh, Bell Lightbox, which is basically it's like a film lover's dream. It's this huge theater. It's, um, they screen like all these retrospectives, they screen a lot of art house movies, and they, ha they it's like kind of the TIFF uh, headquarters, and they even have like a shop where you can like buy all these cool film books and whatnot. And in there, when I pick up my ticks, I noticed they had a James Franco's My Own Private Idaho art installation up. Oh, wow. Uh, and I actually went in there and watched a bit of it. Oh, that's it, great. It, what he did is he, um, he took scenes that Van Sant wrote but couldn't film, and he went and he filmed them on Super 8. And the funny thing is that Udo Kier actually reprises his role in it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that guy is up for anything. But anyway, was it, did it look like it could be, I don't know, uh, interspersed into the movie with continuity? Not really. Again, I wasn't paying. Like, I watched oh. just a bit of it, and okay. I couldn't really hear it. Like, the audio wasn't very good, but it was interesting. Actually, I guess I can mention this. One other thing, non-tiff-related but on that note is that I saw a screening of Van Sant's new film, Restless. Oh, wow. I don't know if there was an embargo because they didn't say, don't talk about it until, because uh, I don't think it opens in Montreal until next weekend. But uh, honestly, it's getting panned, but I, I actually liked it. Oh, good. Good. Right on. The thing about it is that it's very kind of overwritten and cloying, but I think that Van Sant sort of rescues it, at least him and Harris Sabetis. They... Because it definitely feels like one of his kind of like classic like late '80s, early '90s movies. Okay. So I'd, I'd recommend it. Right on. That's yeah. that's that's kind of how I feel about Finding Forrester. I thought that movie was overwritten and cloying, but I think that Van Sant and the performances definitely saved it. How's uh, How's Henry Hopper? I was actually uh, quite impressed with him. In fact, this is something I, in a theory, I kind of thought of during the movie, is that there's one scene where he's wearing these certain sunglasses. And you'll remember that uh, I think River Phoenix wore the same pair in My Own Private Idaho. Okay. Or at least in some other movie. And I was thinking, and he looks kind of like River Phoenix too. So I was kind of weirdly, and Mia Wasikowska kind of looks like Martha Plimpton, who was River Phoenix's real life girlfriend. Right. So I almost came up with this interpretation that the movie, would, in a way, because it's about death, was yeah. sort of him confronting that, making a movie about River Phoenix. Which I thought was interesting. Interesting, but yeah. maybe that's just reading far too much into it. I don't know. Well, <laughs> considering Van Sant, you know, I think he wrote a fictional fictional book about a movie star that's kind of like River Phoenix, and and you know, that's probably not that far off. How's uh, how's Mia? 
Miwasuke. I well, I'm I'm a fan of her. Okay. So good performance. Then you me. think? Yeah, I thought she was quite good. Cool. Right on. Cool. Uh, Barry, I'll just let you go next because I think I've only really watched. I, I'm. I was getting caught up on on Twin Peaks this week, and Gears of War three swallowed my life. So I think the one main thing I'm going to talk about is something that's on your list. So I'll just let you go. Okay. Okay. Well, well, thank you, Ethan, for the report. By the way, that was really cool. And I got to say, I've never heard of the hardcore movies. I'm I'm really intrigued. I've never heard of these. Have you seen these, Dave? No. no. Yeah. 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 I want to see them. They they are uh, one of the many uh, DVDs with the Quentin Tarantino presents and his faces on them. Oh, yeah. I I don't. Again, I don't know why I haven't heard of them. I'm trying to find those. All right, um, I revisited Barry Levinson's Sleepers for the first time in 15 years, and I, I hadn't seen it since the theater. Um, for those of you who just remember, this is the movie where the boys get molested or whatever. It needs to be seen again. This is, I think, and basically the- there would be no uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon game without it. I That's think. right. This movie really. This movie, you're absolutely right, Ethan. This movie and GFK really made that game a really great game. Um, no, I, I, it, it's not perfect, but I don't. Th- I think it rarely, rarely missteps until the very end. But all that to say, this is the kind of film that I think would have come obviously much easier for Martin Scorsese. It's that kind of film, and yet I do think this is one of Barry Levinson's best made films. I think the cinematography is really crisp. I thought the editing made some really terrific choices. There's some real stylish moments of filmmaking, especially during the first hour, which is the best part. Before the whole amazing cast even shows up, the movie is pretty, pretty terrific. Um, De Niro, this is back when De Niro was actually giving really great performances. And even though I know his performance in Sleepers isn't mentioned alongside Travis Bickle and, you know, probably never will be, um, but I love his his performance in this movie. He's so moving in this movie. I love De Niro's performance. I really think it's one of his most underrated. Uh, Jason Patrick, I thought, was outstanding in the lead role. Kevin Bacon embodies, just embodies all that is evil and wrong about the people who hurt children. And that's kind of what the film is about thematically, just about the men in our lives as children, the men who inspire us and the men who hurt us. And, and uh, De Niro is kind of like the, the antithesis of the Kevin Bacon character, and I thought there was a real real strong good and evil thing going there. Um, Brad Pitt, this was kind of like when he was, well, when People Magazine called him the sexiest man alive and whatnot. And it's not one of his strongest performances, but he, like the rest of the adult cast, they really do convey just that haunted look of people who are just kind of carrying this terrible secret around with them. The overall story, the the whole courtroom story, it's definitely far-fetched, no question. And the ending, the final scene of the movie, you really get the sense that Barry Levinson is trying to give a happy ending to a story that can never, ever have a happy ending. So it is a little formulaic. Um, but I really love this movie. I was surprised how much I liked it. Um, it was one of these things where I, regret, I I was really hesitant to watch it again because I think like most people, I remember you know that it being about these kids who were molested. And in 1996, this story was seen as very far-fetched. And then, of course, just a few years later, there was all these reports about the Catholic Church abuses and all mm-hmm. that. And all of a sudden, the story became very timely and no longer as far-fetched. Um, but I do highly recommend it if you want to see a film that just, it, it, you know, for a Hollywood movie, it actually is very complex and it does have some powerhouse acting. And I think it's a, it's a fine American film. Um, Dave and I saw I Am Nancy the other night. This, is, of course, is the documentary co-directed and conceived by Heather Langenkamp, the star of the Nightmare on Elm Street films, or rather Nightmare on Elm Street, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, and Wes Graham's New Nightmare, as well as other films. Um, she made this documentary kind of... Uh, exploring not only the phenomenon of her character's trajectory of how horror fans see Nancy, but also uh, basically what it's like to be a movie star. In the star. shadow of Freddy. In the shadow of Freddy and be on the, the horror convention beat, which is really fascinating. I've never seen a documentary deal with it in this way. It initially begins as kind of a fun, fluffy fanboy piece. And it, it, feel, it Honestly, the opening felt like like a lifetime reality show. Yeah. like something like, Or something you'd see on TLC. It was really, I was kind of like, okay, 
I don't know what I was expecting, but it, it, it's not this. Yeah, no, you're right. The opening scenes, because uh, it, 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 uh, it has an interesting uh, bumper, essentially, about a young fan who is getting a Freddy tattoo, and Heather Langenkamp is, is aware of this, shows up, and tries to... Well, she's his point, boss. Almost, almost begs him to, like, will you ever consider getting a Nancy tattoo? And he says, no, why would I, why would I do that? <laughs> no, 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 no. What was beautiful about that was that he's like... Crap, how do I... You can see it on his face. Yeah, how do I say no? He's trying to be nice about it, but no, it's clear that he does not want a Nancy tattoo, and you know, and why, and why would he? But the movie, uh, not only does it make a case that Nancy's actually this really great character, and certainly as pivotal as Freddy Krueger for the success of the first movie, absolutely, I'll go with that. Um, but what begins is it's just kind of a fun, self-indulgent fanboy movie, and certainly a must for all Nightmare on Elm Street fans. Um, I thought it became a really strong film about just uh, empowerment. About uh, about embracing your own empowerment, your own entitlement as a person, uh, not only in terms of the Nancy character, but how the Nancy character has actually inspired a great deal of people, including Wes Craven. And uh, there's some really there's a really startling interview with Jessica Craven, Craven's daughter. That that and kind of surprised me. That was uh, yeah the the stuff that comes out of that interview is pretty uh, pretty remarkable, I think, and uh, one of the most surprising things about the film. Um, I think I Am Nancy is pretty terrific. I, there's only a few moments I thought that got a little too self indulgent of just a few missteps here and there but for the most part i think it's a pretty great little film it's a great film it's got a great amount of heart behind it and that's really what one thing i really admire about it is the film's only like 70 minutes long a lot of people doing their first film would be like i need to make this feature length this needs to be an hour and a half or two hour long epic and that's not what the film needed and the film felt like it was it was the perfect length honestly and it moves really well it does move very well Uh, it it's it's very interesting seeing. I, I as, as much as I know that she that Heather has put has put a lot of whatever has happened culturally behind the Nancy character behind her. A lot of this was an exploration of hers, really understanding Nancy's place in the horror universe. And I thought it, it was very well done because it was honest the entire way through. And I really that's that's like all you can ever hope for from a documentary is true honesty. And this film has it. In spades. And even if you're not a fan of, say, Heather Langenkamp as an actress, as as that's come up a few times on this show, um, and, and and that's not me. I've always liked her, regardless. I just find her so appealing. But even if you're not a fan of her as a, as a, as a so-called you know so dramatic actress, or you know not really not even familiar with her films, if you like the Nightmare on Elm Street films, if you're at, interested in the horror movie convention scene, um, and you just want to see something that's really unique and fresh in its approach, I, I think this is a really fun and really essential documentary. Much better than something like The People versus George Lucas. Um, oh, absolutely! Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was a complete. Oh, it's not I don't as call rich. It a wank fest, wank fest, but it, it kind of it, it is. And yeah. and and this like I wouldn't. I don't think it's this is quite as strong as best worst movie, but I think mm-hmm. it's it's in that kind of category in the sense of it. It's uh, you know it's it, it is for the fan base that already exists, but I think it, it goes beyond that, and I think it would it would be enjoyed by a broad fan base. There was one part where I wanted to scream in the theater. I just have to get this out. Okay, the part where like the one guy in the press r- in in the room was asking that really long winded question about the the place of Freddy in the in the in, in the tome of, of horror film movie monsters and he says the 50s brought us Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman I'm like dude you are so two decades too late on that what's wrong with you <laughs> I was such a nerd um, the the biggest thing is it really show it really brings through the the true personalities of everyone behind it not just Heather Langenkamp who's an absolute sweetheart oh yeah 
Yeah. And uh, but just everyone involved from Robert England to Wes Craven, that Jessica Craven interview had me glued the entire time because yeah. it's very yeah. honest, it's very blunt. It's and startling how, how how forthright she is. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was quite good, and she was and Heather Langenkamp was there, so we got to meet her. Langenkamp was there, and I, she granted me an interview, uh, and I gotta say she was just absolutely wonderful and fantastic and totally open, and uh, she's obviously just so gracious to her fans. I mean, Dave and I, we waited, uh, we we saw the film, we waited for the chance to talk to her afterwards because she asked if it, you know that. We, that I just kind of tell what I thought of the film afterwards and we eventually just got in line because it's like man this is going to be a long night and she took the time to just give uh, you know just to really give fan each of her fans like a moment to talk and just to have a you know just to have a moment and to take pictures and to sign autographs I mean extremely gracious oh yeah she was there what probably three hours after at the thing least, finished at least because yeah. the thing the event started at eight and we got our stuff and we're out at two and there were like two people behind, in line behind us at that yeah, point yeah so no, no question you know, she was absolutely fantastic we really appreciate her and I want to give a quick shout out to uh, Tommy Houston who was there he was the writer and producer of Never Sleep Again yes. and they showed the first chapter which was like 45, 40 minutes long talking about the history of Nightmare on Elm Street for people who may not have been clear about it and it was cool getting to chat with him because I was like this is so much better than other movies you know I was thinking his name is Jason and I like his name was Jason but we were talking it, it really is a fluff piece whereas Never Sleep Again is quite Realistic, realistic. I was it's like very probing. Yeah. So I was like, I, this was this was really good, and I enjoyed it a lot more than certain other ones. He's like, which one? I was like, his name was Jason. Oh, I did that one too. Damn it. He's like, no, 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 no. I, I. He was so blunt and honest. He's like, I'm never doing that kind of film ever again. And, and you know, to your credit, Dave. I mean, like, who the heck would have thought that the one other movie we thought as an example would be the other one that this guy actually made? Who the heck would have thought? Like, yeah. You know, and it, that you know. Well, and I still, <laughs> I still stand by my positive review of the film, but still, it was like this one just stepped up his game so much more. It was such a more comprehensive and honest thing that, yeah. No, oh, you're, you're totally right, Dave. Because I mean, his name is Jason. We both liked it. It's very enjoyable. But like, you know, as we were talking about the other night, the elephant in the room for that movie is those movies aren't very good. Yeah. The Friday the Thirteenth movies are fun, but they're not good movies at all. The Nightmare on Elm Street movies, for the most part, even the weaker ones, are still stylish. They're ambitious. They're actually quite good. And that documentary really probes into the ones that don't work and really brutal. Totally analyze Especially aspects two. of the one. Well, two, you know, two is a very controversial one, and and you know, and the documentary really gets into that. Even Keith was talking about like how yeah. you know how how arresting all that is. Um, but and, yeah, 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 no question. And big Good props stuff. to Keith Garcia over at the Denver Keith, Film Society, our for, hero, man. Man, he put together a great event. Oh. That was a, a ton of fun. Keith is, gee, God, that guy is just the pimp of cinema in Colorado. That guy is amazing. The stuff he puts together. Yes, absolutely. So, is there anything else you wanted to bring up at all? Yes, I need to talk about Drive. This is. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Um, Did that come out this week or last week? It was last week, and I, okay. I actually took Julia to see it. Um, okay. Which was also a mistake. Um, although, <laughs> but you know, I, I didn't know the kind of movie it was, and we were both open to it, and we both wanted to love it. Um, not only because of the good reviews, but because for Pete's sake, the cast, uh, this director is clearly a talent to watch. And it's it's really strange. Like on one hand, like I, I, I didn't like the film, but I find myself defending it a lot because I, I don't know about you, Ethan, but it's like, it, for me, it's like both sides of the coin where honestly, like I, I have my objections to the film and they're really, you know, not all that compelling or anything you haven't heard before. But people who say that, oh, it was really slow, it wasn't as good as I thought it would be, or like there wasn't enough action and car chases and, you know, like I, I, I'm resistant to that kind of criticism because that is the kind of film this is um I think the best thing about the film, what I love about the movie, first of all, is the feel of the movie and the atmosphere of the movie and the soundtrack. This is, it's such a cool movie to watch and experience. 
no question. When it was over, I just found that it, it just didn't linger with me at all. And it's just because I'd seen so many films like this. I think if you've seen Walter Hill's movie, The Driver, which has a very similar story, and if you've seen any of the early Michael Mann films, I feel like you've already seen Drive, and you've seen it in kind of a better uh, incarnation. Um, and other than Brian uh, Cranston's character and performance, which I really loved, I didn't feel the characters were fleshed out beyond being kind of the cardboard cutout film noir figures. And again, that's you know that's what the movie went with. And you know I can't really criticize the film for that, other than I just I didn't really I didn't really care about the characters in the movie as much as I watched them, and I didn't find any of the story to be remotely surprising. Well, I think the movie is actually completely unique, and it's different than, for example, if Michael Mann had directed it or Walter Hill had directed it. And that, to me, what makes it special is it is actually a combination of certain things. For example, it's this kind of like '80s, like it's it's both a um, it evokes both the '80s in terms of its kind of a violent, gritty, like glossy movie, but at the same time, it's this very there's this gooey, romantic heart at the center of it. It is, it's sort of how like much it embraces being cheesy. Like there's this montage where Ryan Gosling is kind of driving Carrie Mulligan and her kid set to uh, a real hero by college. And it's this like very kind of uh, poppy synth beat. And there's like this image of Ryan Gosling like carrying the kid and like how like it's so willing to be so kind of like cheesy and, be, and earnest is amazing. At the same time, this is best... Um, exemplified in the uh, elevator scene how there's you know he he takes her he kisses her in slow motion and then he well he stomps a guy's head in it's all about kind of combining both the fantasy and the brutal violent brutally violent that's part of why i liked it so much cool cool and no question. I mean, it, it is unique to everything else out there. And I think that's one of the reasons people are so turned off by it or so split by it. Because, I mean, there's no trailer that could possibly give you an idea of what this film is like. And no question. Well, I, I imagine most people, like, you see the trailer, then there's, like, these hot pink, like, opening titles are being like, this is fucking gay, and then, like, walking out or something. Yeah, and sadly enough, I'm sure that's that's been the reaction over here. I would not be surprised because I think the great reviews have been kind of countered by the word of mouth, which has been so really mixed. Although I got to say, I'm like one of the few people <laughs> that I know that didn't really care for the film. And it's not that, and, and I want to be very clear about this, and it's not just because I want to like, you know, appeal to those who really love this film. It's, it's not that I think this is a bad film at all. Um, it just didn't grip me the way I wanted it to. I didn't find it as fresh as I hoped it would. And I just, I felt like I'd seen this sort of thing done before better decades ago. Um, though I, I've, no question, I admire that films like this are still being made and actually released in, in, you know, in thousands of American screens. But I just, I don't think this is one of the great Ryan Gosling performances. I really don't. And he's one of these guys who I always say, like, whenever he does a movie, he's one of these actors you need to see regardless of what it is. And I think he plays the character really well within the limitations of the character. But for me, the character is almost like a Snake Plissken kind of role where I feel like it's it's more of a gimmicky character than a really well-fleshed-out one. Although, again, that's... To me, he had, uh, he had, like, a complete kind of Alain Delon kind of level of cool to me. Like, kind of in, like, Les Samurai or Le Cercle Rouge. Just yeah. kind of that quiet, cool... And, like, just, like, him with the scorpion jacket, I think, is, like, one of the best images in any film this year to me. Him just, like, it on the back with him with the jacket. I, I just, or, I, or him with the hammer, like, in the strip club. I just, so many of the images of it, just, you said it didn't linger with you, it completely did for me. 
it just hasn't stayed with me. And none, nothing in the story was surprising to me. I mean, you you know the heist is going to go wrong. You know that things are going to go bad. And it just it felt more like a really well made exercise to me than something that really evokes the real thing. Oh, it's, it's interesting actually you bring that up because that's um, I don't I'm sure you guys have heard of the artist. Yes, which is coming in. I saw that about a month ago, and that's how kind of I felt about it. It's like, you know, it's a very well done middle brow formal exercise. Like, yeah, you made a silent movie. That's cool. It's well done. But like people who are being like, oh, best movie of yeah, I'm kind of like really. But I think maybe just part of this though is why so many of the things in it do appeal to me so much. Like kind of the, like I said, the synth music, the kind of the gooey heart of it, the scorpion jacket, Albert Brooks. Like there's just so many things in it that are appeal to my tastes and have kind of made it linger in my mind. I think it just some of it, like I said, I think some of this just comes down to taste. Sure, sure. And, you know, you mentioned Albert Brooks, and not only was he great, but uh, the performance that's really not getting a lot of attention that I, I genuinely love because I forgot how fierce this actor could be was Ron Perlman. Um, I haven't I haven't found him this intimidating and really frightening in a movie in a long time, and I really I really liked what he did in the film. And for that matter, I like what Carey Mulligan did too. There's not a bad performance in the movie, um, but you know, again, I, this is just personal preference. Uh, I I was not, I did I didn't find myself connected to the love story or the relationship between the driver and the little boy. Um, you know, for me, I just felt like I'd seen this before, and 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 uh, yeah. I, and even, you know, the action sequences were highly touted, and I, I certainly didn't walk in expecting Fast Five, no question. Um, but as much as I thought the action sequences were extremely well done, I wasn't floored by them the way I, I guess I was hoping I would be. Um, there's a scene early in the movie where the driver is in this incredibly suspenseful chase, and then he parks the car and just casually walks away from it. And I felt the movie was, I felt the whole film is kind of like that for me. Like, on one hand, it was very cool to watch, but I found myself very detached from it somehow. So obviously it's a case of preference, and you know, Ethan, what you're saying about how you felt about the artist is kind of like how I feel about this movie. And it, you know, it's not that I don't admire the film or, or appreciate uh, really the, the cinematic qualities of this film, which are very rich. Um, but I, f- I think it's I'm not going to say my trademark thing, but I think it is a, a tad overrated. And uh, I, uh, you know, I I appreciate the people who love this film and get it because again, it's it's rich. It's clearly made by a very very talented and ambitious filmmaker. But I don't think next to especially next to Bronson or even Valhalla Rising, I don't think this is one of his best films. But it may grow on me. I'm still thinking about it. All right. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, then shall we move on to what came out in theaters this past weekend? Yes. And Ethan and I will talk about this in a moment. The critically acclaimed Moneyball, starring Brad Pitt, Jonah Hill, and Philip Seymour Hoffman from the director of Capote, Bennett Miller. On the other end of the spectrum, currently rating at 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, John Singleton's new film. So sad this is John Singleton's new film, uh, starring Taylor Laudner and Sigourney Weaver, Abduction. Um, uh, correction, 4%. Oh, 4%? It's gone up? Up. Oh. Yeah. You know, so you, I'm you, sorry, John you, Singleton. You counted out the Twihards. I did. I apologize, Mr. Singleton. I didn't mean to make it sound like nobody liked your movie. I'm sorry. It's just next to nobody liked. <laughs> <laughs> Dolphin Tale, uh, starring the now controversial Morgan Freeman, Ashley Judd, and Harry Connick Jr. Wait, what? Morgan Freeman's controversial? You haven't heard about this? No, he, no I've, I've what, missed this. The, whole, like the thing with the stepdaughter? No, he uh, <laughs> no, he, uh, he called the Tea Party racist the other night. Yeah, he went on... Well, uh, stating the truth is controversial. um, Well, you know, in this country, sometimes calling the kettle black gets you in trouble. So, anyway. Okay, hang on. We have to. 
Well, do you have a soundbite you want I, to pull up? I, or what I, am, do? I am conservative by nature, but we were talking because they had what was it? You betcha! They had a they had a giant poster for that up at the uh, Star Center for, for Film Fest Center, the Sarah Palin documentary. Oh, that. And I we, forgot about that. And we that. got to talking that we really hope that Michelle Bachman gets the nomination and then Palin is her VP choice so we have the Bachman-Palin overdrive. <laughs> I, I just think not only would that be a ticket that sadly a lot of Americans would vote for, but I think they would kind of cancel each other out. Okay. And no question, you know, enough. no question. It's not like we're not picking on an entire political party here, but it's just, my goodness, those, those two. You know, it's like Laverne and Shirley of their time. Okay, anyway, sorry, we were I feel talk- better now. This was a movie site. We were talking about It was. About it used to be. Yeah, One so day. hope we haven't like alienated all of our really conservative fans. That's like, probably about 75%. Yeah, do we have really conservative fans? I don't know. I, I don't know. Really, I don't I think don't that, that our show really usually uh, I think, depends uh, on uh, I was talking to Rick Perry the other day, and he's like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you guys need to watch what you say about Morgan Freeman. Uh, let's see. Killer Elite, which is kind of like kind of like a low-key expendable. So you've got De Niro, Statham, and Clive Owen in the same movie blowing stuff up. Got, it got mixed reviews. Apparently, it's not terrible. Taylor it's, Lautner made more money. Apparently so. Well, you know, it's 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 another Luc Besson film. So I've heard it's kind of like a kind of like a good double feature with Columbiana with lower expectations. It's enjoyable, but but nothing special. And then limited release, you have uh, gotten some really interesting reviews. Very mixed. A Machine Gun Preacher apparently returned to form and acting form at least for Gerard Butler. And the much discussed and controversial and very tired topic on this show, Red State, the new film by Kevin Smith. There you go. So you guys saw Moneyball. We did. Uh, I love this film. I really did. I, I thought it was quite good as well. That was quick. Uh, I, All right. I guess we should actually discuss it then. I guess we should. Um, uh, I think the thing about it, I think for me it's this year's The Fighter and that it's taking something like, you know, kind of, it could be an inspirational sports movie, but I think it makes it so much more about, it's not about sports, it is just about kind of human drama. And I, I think that the movie has a very distinct feel to it, thanks to Bennett Miller, the director. Yes. And uh, like, there's this shot in the movie where it's the opening day, and it's like the the I think it's the national anthems being performed. There's this like close up on a guy playing bass, <laughs> and it's like a, it's a two second shot in the movie, but it blew my mind. But aside from that, yeah, I think the I think the movie is very powerful, and I think Brad Pitt is terrific in it. And again, I I'm curious, what do you think of the final scene of the movie? Because I thought it was amazing. Oh, loved it. I loved it. Um... Yeah, it's. I mean, this film. It. It. So much of it. Uh, I don't want to say hinges on this plot point, but the plot point that just made me really fall in love with the movie immediately was when you see the younger version of Billy Beans when he's, you know, when he has to choose between Stanford or becoming a baseball player for the Mets. And I love that the film is so much about the choices that we make in life. And I love that the yeah the final scene. Um, is, is again so much about like you know it's 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 like a kind of like this fifty fifty thing and then you realize in the closing uh, the closing scroll like like had he made the decision that you know that that we know would have led to this incredible world season and whatnot it would have changed his life and whatnot um, yeah I just I love how this film is about these choices and how how. Uh, how humiliating it can be to be uh, in in national sports. I mean, the, all the scenes where the players are cut, I found really painful and and really powerful to watch. And and as you're saying, Ethan, you're totally right. I mean, this movie is such a character film, and so much about 
the emotions that go into it and so much of, of like, you know, getting rid of the whole allure. I mean, this is not Field of Dreams where baseball is like made into this, you know, to this mythical idea. And I like Field of Dreams, but uh, I found this movie to be more like Eight Men Out. It is kind of somber. It's a very quiet film. It's a very gentle film. And it's it's kind of uh, it's about the obsession and love that the, that the players have for baseball, but also how baseball can be a compromise to your life. It could be a compromise to your ethics. It could be a compromise uh, to yourself as an athlete. And you know, it's that beautiful thing of Billy Beans, the the Brad Pitt character, breaking it down and saying, you know, we should be getting these players because of their talents, not because of the way they look or because they're too old or because they're not popular. Um, and and the whole time, maybe you thought of this too. The whole time I'm thinking, watching the movie, I thought about Brad Pitt as an actor. I thought, you know, I bet he really related to this character because I mean, this is this is the actor who almost walked off of The Devil's Own because they thought the script was completely compromised. This is the actor who took almost no money. In fact, I think he did the assassination of Jesse James for like a keg of beer. Frankly, um, you know, and, and it, 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 there's so much of Pitt in this character as somebody who's like, well, screw money, screw popularity, screw what everybody says is the one way you have to do it uh there are there are different ways there are different approaches to something that's as sacred as baseball um yeah i obviously i i'm very fond of this film i was kind of hoping though there'd be a scene where they played the toronto blue jays just to be like yeah <laughs> i you know i thought the the actual ball game scenes in the film were very well done but i'm like yourself i'm sure i love that it, the movie it wasn't major league it wasn't bull durham you know it wasn't like all the other baseball films it really, i think my favorite baseball movie is still tony scott's the fan interesting <laughs> i want to do a show on tony scott i uh, i recently revisited deja vu and i think it's one of his best films i love i agree it. I, I, I love that movie. i couldn't believe because i liked it the first time i saw it but watching it the other day i'm like you know this is this is really one of the best one of the most cleverly written and one of the most solid hollywood time travel movies i think i've ever I, seen i think he has some of the most honestly he's one of the most artist art not he's one of the most art he has of all the directors like working in hollywood i think he's one of the ones with the most artistry to be honest well anyway we need to do a tony scott episode. <laughs> no no no, no. I'm, I'm not totally disagreeing with you i mean you know i'm just i'm thinking the, the movies he's done that i don't like obviously but uh you know and obviously i've obviously i've got a fondness for his brother but uh but no scott's great now i do i do think we do need to do a tony scott episode very soon anyway we were talking about moneyball i think it's one of the best films of the year and i agree with you ethan i think Pitt is wonderful. I think it's one of his most endearing performances. I love Jonah Hill in this movie. I love Jonah yeah. Hill's performance. And Spike Jones was awesome. Yeah, Spike Jones in that. Yeah, that was a really great scene. Great scene. And I gotta say, Philip Seymour Hoffman, like that character is a small character. I loved it because it, in some ways it's the toughest one in the movie to play because he could have played it totally as a villain. But you look at it like, no, like the Philip Seymour Hoffman character, he really is almost in a sense the one rational person in the whole film. Cool. Yeah. Well, right. anyway, shall, shall we move on to DVD releases? We're like, yeah, we're coming up on forty minutes into the episode. Okay. Sorry about that. DVD releases. We're, just, we're totally skimping on things. No, okay, no, no. Uh, Transformers Three: Dark of the Moon. The uh, you don't need to see it if you've already seen it, and if you don't have never seen it, never see it. That's my instant review. Ben Hur, the fiftieth anniversary edition of the spectacular epic starring uh, Charlton Heston, one of the great action movies and really one of the great epic Hollywood films. Mimic, Guillermo del Toro's a little scene and needs to be discovered uh, early horror film involving giant cockroaches. It's available now in the director's cut. Great film. Uh, Charlton Heston, starring in Treasure Island, uh, co-starring, uh, playing Jim Hawkins, Christian Bale. This is directed by Fraser C. Heston, Fraser's son, who also made Needful Things, I think, which is a very good Stephen King film. Um, 
Heston is very hammy, but I gotta say, Bale's very good in this. Okay. Carlos, the wonderful, wonderful, uh, wonderful horror crime uh, horror crime film. <laughs> uh, obviously, I'm struggling to find a genre for this film. It is a it's a it's a how would you describe this one? Bio documentary. It's almost like the the Steven Soderbergh uh, category of films. I mean, this film this fits in the category of films like Z. Uh, it's just fantastic. And Edgar Ramirez in the lead role is is brilliant. It, it takes some time to get through, but man, it is worth it. I love Carlos. Great film. Available Criterion Blu-ray. Also available on Blu-ray, you've got A Nightmare on Elm Street Parts 2 and 3. Yep. Which we've uh, kind of briefly mentioned earlier. Uh, from Trauma, Mother's Day, the original Mother's Day. Buster Keaton's film, Go West. Anything with Keaton is worth seeing. Also available on Criterion, The Haunting and Creepy, The Phantom Carriage, right in time for Halloween. Basket Case, the cult horror film. The Matrix 2 and 3, the about... Which is said, the less the better. Well, that way you can only buy the first one and skip. I, I hope they package the first one with Animatrix, and then that that'd be kind of worth buying. Exactly, just yeah. buy the first one. Didn't didn't need to be a sequel. Jimmy Fallon's uh, one good movie, Fever Pitch, co-starring Drew Barrymore, which is also a remake. Uh, Heather's, which seems like they get released on DVD it's been released like every other week. Yeah, it's starting to become like the Terminator Two and <sighs> Evil Dead. Yeah, of yeah. They Although the new Evil Dead Blu-ray release looks amazing. Does it really? Yeah, like even a movie that like. That like new clunky? special features. It's it's. I mean, well, the, the, apparently the transfer is great, but the special features are outstanding. Like they're essentially saying, you know, we, we're actually trying to. I I actually don't think this is being put out by Anchor Bay, and they're just trying to make a definitive version. I forget who even who has the rights. That's great. Yeah, Godfather of Gore, the Herschel Gordon Lewis documentary, Man Alive. So if you're a fan of his ultra splatty, disgusting horror films like my brother, you do need to see this film because apparently Godfather of Gore is pretty great. Nice. Um, Footloose, the deluxe edition. Don't need to see With it. Zach Efron? <laughs> uh, um, the aforementioned, uh, actually, Ethan mentioned this a few weeks ago. Uh, Good Neighbors. Uh, this is the Jay Baruchel serial killer film, also starring Scott Speedman. In this my, uh, film, I play a serial killer, and I read all of my lines with the same inflection. You silly dragon. That's my, my Jay Baruchel. My roommate saw it. Did your roommate like it? Not really. Okay. Uh, let's see, Married with Children, the complete series. You know, the first episodes of the show are pretty bad. In fact, the first couple seasons are bad. But after a while, it did become a pretty fun parody of, like, the good, wholesome American sitcom. I like Married with Children. And then finally, this one's for you, Jack, Dawson's Creek, the complete series. Yes. 40 bucks. I don't want to wait. For our lives to be over. Okay. It's really sad that we all know that. That's all I know about it. Yeah. Okay. That's all you know, Dave? That's all that I know of that song, Yes. Well, remember, June 16th, 2013, when we do our episode, you'll know a lot more. <laughs> this is true. There we go. Mark your calendar, Screen Geeks fans. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Okay. That's it for that. Uh, all right. Uh, this is, this is going to be the truly light portion of the episode because I got squat for news. Likewise, no news. So, Ethan, what you got? Uh, we, we brought this up before. The, we talked a little about this before the show, but time to bring it to the show. Uh, the uh, J. Edgar trailer. Mm. Which I never got around to seeing, but but you said the, the, do do your impression of that so I can actually make my joke. <laughs> the FBI needs to be on run with Hoover. So it's essentially a Professor Farnsworth movie. Huzzah! Yeah, 
and, and Barry, you said you weren't exactly excited by this trailer. <laughs> I was underwhelmed. Uh, Eastwood, you know, he's hit and miss. I'll be honest about that, even though I love him as a filmmaker and I love most of his movies, even the ones that don't work because I see the ambition and the talent behind the camera. But this doesn't look like a particularly interesting movie. This looks kind of like White Hunter Black Heart, you know, where it's like it's a great idea for a film and it's a really ambitious idea. I don't know if Eastwood's kind of stately approach to this material is going to work as i mentioned uh, i think oddly enough someone like oliver stone i think is a little more it probably wouldn't be fair with the material well, to me this movie it looks like what you get when you hire an 80 year old republican to make a movie about a closeted homosexual <laughs> don't hold back ethan that's all i ask no 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 no, no. That, that's a that, that that's a totally fair assessment um and yeah, I, I don't know if Eastwood's the right guy to do this, not only in terms of his, his, his politics, which he's been very vocal about, but also because his his films tend to be very stately and leisured. And uh, when you're making a film that's, you know, it's going to be a lot of scenes of people in offices talking to one another, I think you do need a filmmaker who's a, just a little more dynamic, because Eastwood does tend to be very by the book when it comes to these sort of films. So, Well, I've read the screenplay for the movie, and it's pretty good. Yeah. But the thing is that I and I read this quote from Eastwood where he's like, you know, I want to keep his like sexuality like ambiguous and whatnot. I want the audience to be able to guess. The whole point of the script is that it's about him being gay. <laughs> Interesting. It just seems like to me it's going to be another movie with desaturated color, the guitar score, two and a half hours long. <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio like doing a ridiculous accent and ridiculous makeup. It oh. And no CGI tsunami. I know, at least, at least. <laughs> Speaking of that, I think that honestly, I think Army Hammer looks way better in this than DiCaprio. Mm. I am curious to see the either the electricity or the lack of electricity between the two of those. Because I mean, let's face it. I mean, you know, uh, Hoover's um, whether it was whether his homosexuality was the real deal or not. I mean, that is that's pretty much the fascinating focal point of this movie. Nobody, nobody's really all that. We know everything else about Hoover. That is the the element that people are really interested in. And if that if that part of the movie doesn't work, if it's like you know, God forbid, if it's like the love story in Alexander between Colin Farrell and Jay Leto, Jared Leto, rather, oh, yeah. then then we're in trouble because you know that that didn't work there and. and and you, I mean, you're right, Ethan. Like, you know, I mean, if he's if he's soft peddling the part of the film that it really should be the most gripping and you know illuminating part of the story, then then yeah, the film's in trouble. So we'll see. We'll see. Dun dun dun. All right, cool. All right, let's take a quick break. We shall be back, and we shall be talking about Twin Peaks. Dun dun dun. Welcome to the interwebs, home of everything. Would you like to try the new Fruityori Slusho? Uh, what do you want? A podcast? What kind of podcast? Give me one with affable hosts talking about geeky things they do. I want one with geek-related news. Anything else? Let me see. How about a podcast with sometimes interesting topics or celebrity interviews? Yeah, uh, let me have the one with the fitness tips, the one that talks about patio books, maybe the one that talks about upcoming cons. If you want all of that, why not get a combo? You have something that has all of that? I wouldn't offer it if we didn't. Is that possible? Is that legal? <gasps> You want this weekly from GeekRadioDaily.com. What's that? A running gag. So what is this weekly? It's the sometimes weekly podcast with stealth geeks who talk about their week, geek news, and it features looks at patio books, fit club, and con updates. I don't know. One of the hosts is a woman. Oh, really? With a sexy voice. 
So, Geek Radio Daily has forums for geek talks, an active Facebook and Twitter page, and the award non-winning, sometimes weekly podcast. All this and more at geekradiodaily.com. That's a major accomplishment for after 35 years of <laughs> being a failed filmmaker. Lloyd Kaufman gets to be on screengeeks.com. <laughs> well, from Lloyd Kaufman to David Lynch... Uh, it seemed, okay, not even close to being related, but... <laughs> That's all right. Uh, gosh, this is... I'm really excited that we're doing this. Twin Peaks was such a part of my childhood watching this show. Um, Your secret childhood. No, no, no. I was open about it. And in fact, I told you, I used to watch this show with a log. Um, yeah, but I thought you I was, said you, your parents wouldn't let you watch it, so you had to sneak it. Well, yeah, they, they assumed that I was still watching, like, let's see, Alf and The Wonder Years, you know, so I don't think they knew that I was watching this really kind of demented uh, soap opera at night. But no, I mean, how, how audiences now feel about, like, watching and discovering and taking in The Walking Dead and Mad Men from the beginning, that's how Twin Peaks was for me. This this was a really magical thing to be, to be part of and to, to watch unfold, and even at its absolute worst um, and the show definitely took some real downturns in the second season but even at its absolute worst there was nothing else like it on TV and it it certainly did change the face of television so yeah we, we finally get to do an episode about Twin Peaks I finally watched it woohoo yay yay excellent excellent um, alright well let's see uh, I got with me character I'm- impressions <laughs> do you want to just jump to that or do we want to like wait till we actually talk about the show <laughs> What do you think, Dave? I think it should they should come about as a natural progression of discussing the character development of the show. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Well, that won't take very long. I have with me my other Bible, uh, the Welcome to Twin Peaks, uh, complete guide to who's who and what's what. This is the kind of thing I used to buy in my youth. I, I also have The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, by the way. Um, which I read cover to cover. Let's see. Um, all right. Let's see. Get to the. I've got uh, character bios here, and here we go. Talking about each individual episode, but I guess we could we could start it off. Um, Twin Peaks, of course, is about uh, who killed Laura Palmer, the uh, homecoming queen, the embodiment of all that is good and pure and innocent about uh, about this town, and of course, or this, so we think. So we think, and it turns out Laura Palmer was actually involved in all sorts of sordid things. Which is we, we should probably put a, a spoiler warning up on this because I think you really can't talk about the show without getting pretty. Deep yes, into and we'll get to it when we eventually reveal who killed Laura Palmer. We'll we'll talk about that. That's that's in the. It's second It's really season. weird to see Pennywise the clown do it. I, I just didn't expect him to show up in the show. That was quite shocking. Yes. Spoiler. Um, let's see. Um, the let's see. Did you see the two-hour pilot, Dave, or did you? Yeah, um, yeah. Because there is, because there's like a there's two versions of the pilot. There's one that was actually made into like a just a self-contained movie, which was released overseas in Europe and, and other countries. And then of course there was the just the two-hour pilot that aired on ABC in America. Uh, and I think they're both great. Obviously, though the the overseas version was not only released as a theatrical film, but had a very different ending where you do see who the killer is and the killer. Oh, really? Is, yeah, you see the killer shot, and it's. It's well. It, it's, it's kind pretty of pretty awkward, honestly. Yes. Yeah, and it's it. Yeah, it, it's a very rushed, very forced resolution. They clearly had to come up with some kind of ending for it, which they, of course, they never intended to. And it shows. It shows. I was going to say, is it the same killer? Kind of. Okay. Okay. <laughs> kind of. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. Um, let's see. I guess we should start with favorite characters. That'll get into our impressions. Um, my goodness, uh, I think one of the great performances in television is Kyle MacLachlan as Special Agent Dale Cooper. It is an original and truly unique and strange character, and he more than embodies all that is good in the world. He is such an innocent and earnest person, but he is as strange and as layered as everybody else in Twin Peaks. Initially, I thought he was Andy. 
for some reason. Like they have, almost, they both kind of had that lanky build. Okay. And so I was like, "Wow, my Kyle McLaughlin's playing a total wuss. This is really interesting." Wait, no. Oh, okay, never mind. Yeah, no. Andy is very different better, better hair though. Much, yeah, true. much cooler hair. Yes. Well, I think the thing that's sort of interesting about Cooper in the pilot or McLaughlin's performance is that I think he's actually still kind of figuring out the character. Yes. Because there's this scene where they're talking to Bobby, right? And he's yeah. like, Bobby, what you do is we ask we, the questions and you answer them. It's like this kind of like snide, sarcastic, which feels so unlike Cooper. Yeah. So he's, you know, he's figuring out the character. But I think by, even by like the second episode, he's like got it down pat. Absolutely, and his opening monologue, where it's just him talking to the mysterious Diane to his tape recorder, um, I, I just, it, it, he's just rocking that character. I just feel like that opening monologue, it just it gets the role, and it get, and you just, you're seeing him, uh, just completely embodying all that is that character. And I love that we never find out who Diane is, or even if there is a Diane. I love that about that. Well, there has to be a Diane because he asks for earplugs, and they arrive. That's right. That's right. But maybe Diane is a code for someone, or maybe Diane is—I don't know. I don't Actually, know. Albert. I've, <laughs> I've wondered about that, but uh, you know, not too closely, obviously. Um, Sheriff Truman is probably kind of the most forgotten character of Twin Peaks, even though he's kind of Michael Onkeen was kind of the co-star for this show. Yeah, I think good he's performance. Like, he's awesome. Yeah, he really is. Yeah, like, he's just—I think the thing with a lot of characters on the show. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of interrupting you, but no, that's fine. I think the thing that's awesome about him is. Like, he's not really someone who you could center a show around, but he's just, like, awesome support. Yeah. Like, he just, he underplays every scene perfectly. He's just, like, a solid, likable character when things maybe are a little weird. Like, he's just, he's a great anchor, I find. Yes. Let's see. And, and I'll just go in the order that uh, my Twin Peaks guidebook gives me. Uh, James Hurley, the, uh, the sex symbol of the show, at least one of them, played by up-and-coming actor at the time, James Marshall. Oh, boy. Dreamy on that motorcycle. There you go. The, the, well, I think he's tolerable in the first episode a bit because, like, um, <laughs> uh, you know that scene where they're like calling home room, and it's like, did you sort of see the spark in him? You don't see throughout the show where he's like saying James Early. He's like, yo, and you're like, <laughs> you think he's gonna be kind of like a goofy guy, but the rest of the show he's like, Laura, love me, <laughs> I love Laura. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. I think Bobby is a much more interesting character. Bobby needs to get kicked Bobby in the stones is every my, five I minutes. I think Bobby is my second favorite character on the show. <laughs> Just Bobby. He is amazing. Like, Shelly, we, we like need to... Leo. <laughs> Tell me Keanu Reeves would not have been amazing in that role. Well, I think it was very much a Keanu Reeves sort of... Perform- I mean, the, even the hair... I it was more like William Shatner in a way. William Shatner. <laughs> Definitely with his line rings. But no, he's got, he's got the Keanu hair. He's got the thing of like tying your coat jacket around you, which is long since gone i used to do that in high school but no i mean he definitely has that kind of demeanor i love his character because he's always getting into trouble he's he's not only the quintessential bad boy but he's like feeding that need to be the bad boy and he's all the such time. an idiot oh yeah i like how he doesn't win the darwin award like every episode <laughs> i don't understand uh laura flynn boyle is donna hayward yeah she's kind of no no the girl next door no, I thought she was adorable. I like. I like yeah, she's attractive, but I'm just. I don't know. Well, she's the goody two shoes, you know, and she tried to. She tried to, you know, stir Laura Palmer on the straight and narrow, and it, it didn't happen. And and we learn in the the film, which we won't talk about till later, that you know she kind of got sucked down into that vortex with, with Palmer, but but escaped. Um, let's see. We should character role uh, Jack Nance, who previously played a Razorhead, plays Pete Martell. Uh, Josie, I'm gonna make myself a sandwich. <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. So he's Jimmy Stewart? It's a fun episode. Jack Nance, like, I mean, he's been in a lot of Lynch films. Unfortunately, he died a couple, not more than a couple years ago. But, uh, yeah, I always love the really weird things that Lynch always has him do, especially on Twin Peaks, because he's, he's kind of a thankless character. You wonder what the heck Josie Packard would see in him. You know? Yeah. Because Joan Chen, now, then, always absolutely gorgeous and alluring. And you wonder, what the heck is she doing with this guy? Well, he's just an awesome dude, you know. Like he—he's <laughs> he's like he goes fishing. He's just—he's just—he's straight and honest. Like, like I said, he's kind of like Truman in a way. He's just like a a cool, like earnest guy to have in the background. Yes, this is a guy exactly. He's—he's he's very much like this is like the person Truman's going to be if he lives in Twin Peaks his whole life. Just one of these really upstanding and you know unassuming guys. Um, let's see, Catherine Martell, played by the wonderful Piper Laurie. I like like her performance is good, but I, I I always found her subplots to be kind of the dullest part of the show. I agree. A little more straight ahead soap opera. Yeah, because and you know you need the intrigue with Ben Horn, a uh, Ben Horn rather, uh, played by Richard Bamer. But at the same time, you're right that that whole aspect of her having an affair with him and all the plotting and stuff. That's when it did feel a lot like all my children. Um, let's see. We, I guess let's jump to Sherilyn Fenn as Audrey Horn. Oh boy! Awesome. Yeah, like pure nitro, man. Um, I loved her. All of the scenes where she's—it's just her and Cooper, man. The chemistry between them, um, you know, the whole tying the cherry stem in a knot—that's become like such a part of the social, <laughs> the social iconography because of her. Um, I'm gonna make a non-Twin Peaks reference. That's in a roundabout way of Twin Peaks reference. Okay. Laura Flynn Boyle when she's in Men in Black Two. Yes, an awful movie. But it seemed like she was trying. She was like. Dang it, I wish I was Audrey. I'm going to try to be Audrey in this movie. Yeah, she's trying to vamp like Cheryl and Fenn. I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Sorry, just had to throw that out there. No, good stuff. Audrey um, might be one of my favorite characters. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, Prince yeah. dated her, so she's got that seal of approval. Prince dated her. She was engaged to Johnny Depp for a long period of time. Uh, she dated Charlie Sheen. Yeah, yeah. No, Fenn. Wow. A lot of lot of men have loved Cheryl and Fenn. And you I'm just thinking about her. Prince meeting her and being like, I saw you on that show. I would give anything to see like an episode of like Blind Date and just like to watch the two of them go out with each other. I, I thought you were going to say I, I wish I could have seen an episode of Twin Peaks with Prince in it. Oh, well, that I mean, that goes without saying, yeah, it's kind of, of course, although I do love the music to Twin Peaks. We'll get to that. Uh, let's see. This is a little indulgent here, but Big Ed Hurley. Oh, he's awesome. Played by Everett McGill with his uh, <laughs> with with his wife uh, uh, with, the, with the eye patch. <laughs> Nadine. Nadine. Oh. They took her. She's the one who goes off the rails more than anyone, I think. Yeah, <laughs> gloriously yeah. so. But yeah, no question. No season two is is very strange, particularly did because she go, of this. did she try to become a pro wrestler in that one? Uh, well, she just be she uh, garners this super superhuman strength, and it becomes uh, the next character, Norma Jennings, becomes this really weird triangle between Norma, Big Ed, and Nadine. Um, I always had a lot of sympathy for Nadine, to be honest. At least oh, in the sure. first season. No, absolutely, yeah. Until she becomes like the Incredible Hulk, yeah, the character kind of. <laughs> but it's it is interesting though because like you know she has amnesia and she still thinks she's in high school and Big Ed plays along with that and it it, it there are some interesting scenes there. It's, it's goofy as that. Especially once Mike is. gets into the picture. Right, right, yeah. Then it becomes like a it becomes a romantic square. Though, so, uh, of course, you can't forget Silent Drape Runners. <laughs> 
It's like she could have been. She, she could have. She could have screamed no more wire hangers. It was just that. Yeah, yeah. it's it's pretty over the top. And it's interesting, of course. A quick quick note, of course, uh, that those uh, performers. Let's see, Wendy Roby and Everett McGill, of course, played husband and wife slash brother and sister in the People Under the Stairs. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Interesting enough. Uh, let's see. Uh, Peggy Lipton is Norma the waitress. Norma Jennings, uh, of course. Pe- Peggy Lipton. She is the mother of Rashida Jones, and she was one of the original Mod Squad. Wait, what? She is. Yeah. Yeah, what? Rashida Jones. Her mom is Peggy Lipton. Her father is Quincy Jones. Wow, I didn't. I did not know that. You could totally see it if you see like a picture of them together. They completely look alike. Or uh, black. Well, other than the the race, quasi difference. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I yeah, can yeah, see yeah, it. I can yeah, see it. Yeah, definitely. I can see it. Uh, man, Machen Amick as uh, as Shelley the waitress. Hello. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I really I I like that character a lot because she's definitely not as goody two shoes as Donna. There's a little more a little more corruption going on there. Well, um, and the, and, yeah. and she had I mean probably had possibly the most heartbreaking story with the whole Leo thing. Yeah, that was interesting. I love that. Like to see that addressed in TV in the eighties or nineties. I was like, still even in the nineties, still it wasn't that widely talked about as an issue. Yeah, the whole abusive boyfriend thing. And yeah. man, I like on the, I think it was like the third or fourth episode where or maybe even the second episode where Leo has the bloody T shirt. I thought, well that's it. He obviously killed Laura yes. Palmer. They really man, they had me going there for a while. Uh Russ Tamblin is Dr. Jacoby. <laughs> I like him a lot to be honest. He's another walks big, solid like three D glasses. Yeah, very quirky character. He's always fun to watch because I was never sure, even like watching the show subsequent subsequently over the years, I'm never sure exactly what his purpose in this world is. Um, so it's always interesting to watch him because I tend to forget where his story trajectory goes. And it's, to say the least, it's very weird. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, one of my favorites, because for Pete's sake, I mean, I used to watch this show with the log every night, The Log Lady. She was interesting. Yeah, she's, she's good. She seems like a bit of a dick at first, but <laughs> she, she helps out at the end. Yeah, it's interesting that they I mean the show in, in the world. I mean, there's really there there isn't a lot that isn't possible in the world of Twin Peaks, and I love that the log really does. I mean, clearly the spiritual powers of the log do play into solving the mystery, yeah. which is uh, kind of a weird thing. And then finally, Laura Palmer, played by Cheryl Lee. She's she is a pretty well. I guess we should mention Maddie. Also. Yes, of course, playing her cousin Maddie. Yeah. You yeah, she's she's interesting. Yeah, I, I like what she does. Um, I really do. I mean, I think, obviously, you know, again, not to jump to the feature film, but I mean, I think she's extraordinary in the film. In the TV series, I think you really get to see her ability to play this sort of really tricky tone when she plays Maddie, obviously, more so than Laura Palmer, which we get these really chilling glimpses of Palmer. I think my favorite scenes of Palmer are, are when she's in uh, when she's in the Black Lodge, when she's in those really weird dream slash Especially that last episode. Oh, yeah, yeah, no scary stuff we'll get you to mi- that you missed my favorite character uh oh which one Albert get me a beer oh I love uh, here's the thing usually I can't stand the character is just an unrepentant dick but he's just so entertaining in this show are we talking about the Mikhail Farrar character is, is that is that the guy yeah who... I said get me a beer I thought you were gonna say Leo but no 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 the, yeah, the, the forensics about... guy the forensics guy who keeps insulting yeah, everyone? Awesome. Yes, Mikhail Farrar. Yeah, I, yeah. I love him because yeah, he's the opposite of Cooper. Because Cooper loves this way of life. He loves these people. Whereas Albert is always reminding you crap all over what it. hicks they are. Like they're living in the sticks. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I here, here's my, my 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 one full my my full admission here is I didn't watch the entire show. Okay, I, I missed probably about five episodes or so. That's a of lot season of two. Let me guess. 
It is. It is. Because I went from one point, everyone hates Albert's guts, to Albert comes in and Harry's giving him a big hug. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I missed something here. So I'm still going to finish it. But okay. I caught a lot of the major points. You only missed five episodes, Dave. I mean, you know, I mean, and that, that happened, as a quick side note, that happened when people were watching the show because so many of the latter episodes were preempted by the Gulf War. So there were a lot. I mean, like without jumping too far ahead, I mean, the whole Wyndham Earl subplot of the second season got so lost, like so many on so many people like me, because I couldn't follow the freaking show because it would, you know, it'd be like, you know, Twin Peaks will not be seen tonight. Now for Norman Schwarzkopf, you know, and I'd watch Schwarzkopf giving speeches about where we were going to attack the enemy, which I thought was strange because I'm like, doesn't the enemy have TV? But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, you yeah. know. Okay, like, sorry, sorry. All right. Just had to throw that out there. Uh, let's see. Uh, do we want to talk about Ronette Polanski? <laughs> No, okay. <laughs> She's a she has a I will say the image of her like walking across that bridge is is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, the whole pilot, man, it's it's pretty hypnotic I found. Um a few years ago when when I first bought the gold box and uh, I was about to sit down and watch it and Julia had no intention of watching it with me. Um she was just like, "Oh, hey, you're going to watch your old Twin Peaks show." Well, um, she's like, well, I'll watch the pilot with you. Maybe maybe we'll like it. Well, it, she got hooked, completely hooked, and we watched the entire thing. Um, although, like a lot of people, when she found out who killed Laura Palmer, that's when she kind of jumped. She did jump ship, and that's when a lot of people jump ship, but we'll get to that. Let's see. It's episode three, um, the extraordinary episode three, where we have the dream sequence, the first dream sequence. <laughs> and, 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 you know, honestly, this is when I knew I was going to be a Twin Peaks fan for life because, uh, to say the least, um, the top shows at that point were Cheers, Roseanne, L.A. Law, uh, and ALF. There was nothing else like this on TV. It's, TV all of a sudden became cinematic. The, you know, the dream sequence alone with its subtitles and its, its European film references and approach and you know, David Lynch's serialism. I mean, it was clear that the, blue, the, the, the filmmaker of Blue Velvet was making a TV show, and it was like nothing else. Um, uh. I actually want to mention about that episode. I think the sequence before it is pretty is one of my favorites on this show as well. Uh, of course, with one of my favorite characters, Leland. Yeah. Dance with me, Laura. Dance. Okay. I have, there was a point in time where I thought that he was the killer because I'm like he's so overcome with grief. I'm wondering how much of it's guilt. Mm. And I'm looking at my twin. And it's Ray Wise. He plays the devil in another show. So I'm like, how much can you trust this guy? He's not in my Twin Peaks guide. That's so strange. They left out. They left out Leland Palmer. Man, this book is flawed. Okay. Well, because yeah, he is one of my favorite characters on the show. Like I, I both because of his performance and the writing, it, it is pretty insane. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. Well, I, I love uh, what is it when there's a dance. And, he's and he like, shows up. He shows up and he starts to break down. And Piper Laurie is doing this thing where she's like emulating his like grief stricken dance. Because he's know. out there dancing with an invisible dance partner. And yeah. Yeah. Audrey's dead. Are, 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 like, Go dance with When uh, she, he jumps on the, the casket. <laughs> <laughs> what was better was when, was when they were talking about it at the restaurant later. And it's like, no, no. And yeah. like everyone's dying at the bar. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny how the show is you know it's a, it's a sad story but this show they do find ways to incorporate some really black humor in there which again really daring for 1990 I'm still but shocked the, this show the ever thing made it about, what were we going to say I just said I'm still shocked that this show ever made it to air oh I'm sure well, yeah, I think yeah. the thing about it that struck me the first time I watched it is I actually think it is more comedy than drama oh absolutely 
Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons people turned against so many of the of the darker aspects of it, whether it be the feature film or you know the the, the who killed Laura Palmer, that whole subplot being revealed. I think, and even Wyndham Earl, it's like the film, and certainly a lot of the, the movie, no question, doesn't really have a sense of humor except for little instances, and. I think one of the things that killed Twin Peaks in its second season, without jumping too far ahead, is that it it became so self-consciously quirky. It became like, well, this is Twin Peaks. So it's got to be weird. You know, it's it's got to be quirky and weird and goofy because it's Twin Peaks. And I think that's one of the things that killed it. The, the film's sense of humor became almost like the latter Star Trek films where it's like, let's be funny because it's been funny. And, because you know, Star Trek Four did well, so we're going right, to run that. Right, so into we're going to be jokey, jokey. Yeah, and I think Twin Peaks had a similar problem, where I mean, people love the quirky, offbeat, and you know, very strange sense of humor it had. So it's like, well, we got to keep going on this route. We got to come up with stuff that's outrageous, and and uh, yeah, because the best the best stuff is just this really gentle character humor. Just you know, you don't need to underline how odd Cooper is. I mean, we know that. So like, you know, when you have yeah. One of my favorite kind of character moments is this isn't even really that funny, but it's when um, Andy sees the body of her and he starts crying. Mm. In the first, something in the like pilot, that. It, yeah. yeah, it's not really funny, but it, it's like such a kind of bold image, I find. And that's when I thought that it was Kyle McLaughlin. I'm like, wow, he's really going in a different place from where I expected. Then you heard him talk. He's like, Lucy. Yeah, exactly. You're like, wait a minute. No. Yeah, kind of a Jack McBrayer. Um, the uh, I think the episode that made me love Cooper the most, just because like man, this guy is heroic, is when he goes and saves Audrey. That's yeah. amazing. That episode, he is so freaking James Bond. It's like man, like you're really seeing Cooper, the the FBI agent. He goes in there undercover. He's got a suit and tie on, and he's got all this black outfit, and he like swoops her up in his arms and saves her. It's like man, this guy is this guy is the real deal. You really see like because you don't really get to see him be an FBI agent. He's just kind of he's almost like a stand-in for the audience for a while. We're just kind of experiencing the town and the story through him but i love that episode where he goes storming into ben horn's uh ben horn's hotel and, and saves audrey and kind of busts that whole deal that was going on there wasn't uh, michael parks in that he was yes he was yeah wow, michael parks you. worked with david lynch and kevin smith that's two ends of a spectrum though he's probably much more proud of working with than david lynch than <laughs> yeah. anyway okay let's see um where to go from here how about the music? Yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, I freaking love the music to this. I was listening to it on the way over here. I love uh, Badalamenti's score. Uh, the Julie Cruz music is is just bliss, I think. It walks a very fine line between that schmaltzy, cheesy soap opera music and being really good music that makes a mockery of it, too. Well, it's the whole thing, it tries to give like this air that it's it's the 50s, but it's not, you know? Yeah. Like, it exists in this sort of, like, Sorted, sorted Bobby Sox world, and yet it is the '90s. It is modern, but uh, it's almost like a like a Tarantino film in that way, you know, where it's like it's it's trying to evoke a time and an idea, and it's perfect because you know the '90s was kind of this decade without its own. It didn't really have its own identity, you know, if unless you consider like flannel, flannel, flannel clothes and a, and a new jack haircut to be uh you know but no really i mean the 90s was kind of a mixing of of you know the 60s the 70s the 80s and it didn't really have its own thing really the 90s was kind of a decade without its own identity um so it's very appropriate that twin peaks you know it, it, it is a 90s show but at the same time it really did you know evoke the 50s the way the 70s was really big on the 50s too well i felt like i mean obviously the main theme is played a lot throughout the show yeah and it is it it does like even as a fan it can drive you a little nuts <laughs> yeah by by how much it's played but I think even just the first few times it's played to me like how 
like I was talking about this with Drive, how kind of like earnestly cheesy it would be. Like, like I remember it's a scene where I think um, I think James is having like a flashback, and Laura's like, "I love you, James," and like the music is like super syrupy. And yeah, it's almost Truman Show syrupy at points. But I mean, I cheesy for me. It's it's always been very tender. I always find yes. it very tender, and no question when uh, when Audrey is is slowly dancing to the music that's playing in the diner, and she's like, "This music, it's so dreamy," and yeah. oh god, that that whole like. You know the whole snap. Yeah. Music. Oh, just like freaking amazing. I never get tired of that music. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think Bottle of Mint. You're right. I mean, he's he's paying tribute to soap operas, and the whole show is. I mean, you get this. They get the soap within a soap. The invitation of love. So invitation, it's like they're completely an invitation com- to love. They're completely open to the kind of show that this is, or the idea of this show, and they go completely past it. Yeah. How would we uh, talk next about kind of season two? Well, let's let's uh, let's get to the cliffhanger of season one. Um, who shot uh, Agent Cooper? That didn't like it. Mm. I liked it. I thought it was good. And I love the way season two opens, where he's on the ground and he's as stiff stiff as a board, and he's covered with blood. And then you see the thumbs up come up, like, "Yeah, yeah. Cooper's okay." I was like, "He's got to be wearing a bulletproof vest because it's <laughs> freaking when, Cooper." Uh, come on, the waiter walks in. Yeah, he's yeah. like, "I got your own milk." Agent Cooper, Agent Cooper, click. I hung it up for you. He's like, thanks. Yeah, no, <laughs> that it's, whole it's, scene is hilarious. It's it's pure Lynchian because it's like it's it's excruciating how drawn out it is, and you're not sure what it is. And the punchline is sweet. He's alive. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> then That's he, the, actually, I wanted to mention too was, I mean, the episodes directed by Lynch, they definitely like all the. I mean, every episode's great, but like. I, you can definitely tell to me when it, yes. it, there's one directed by him. Yes. Like they're almost kind of like the blockbuster episodes of the show. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. They are dark and disturbing, and Bob is terrifying in those episodes. The camera, Lynch always has this thing of making the camera very still when Bob is on, and Bob just kind of just kind of crawls and snakes his way to the camera. And I've always found that terrifying as a kid watching this show. Well, and the-, the first time that character appears on screen is like. I think one of the like just most sudden like what the f- yes but still scary yes well and and to get to your point Ethan about how you know the movie's trying to be quirky almost too hard by the time we get to that final episode it's like Lynch showed up and it's like no 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 let me show you kids how it's done yes yes definitely no like the we're not gonna jump to the final episode yet but no, I mean no, that, but- that episode is I mean it's like a racer head weird I mean it's like it's <laughs> it's crazy but anyway um I guess we should get to uh, who killed Laura Palmer we should just get there. Um, so, spoiler for uh, what the next two minutes we'll talk about. At, at least, yeah, Palmer, yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Um, I, I, Stephen King noted when that show was on the air, he said that was one of the most violent and sick and disturbing things he'd ever seen on TV. And I felt the same way. I was terrified by this episode. Um, I thought they handled it brilliantly. I can't say that I wanted it to be her father, obviously, yeah. and possessed by Bob. I mean, that yeah. was that was insane. And that's but, kind of what's getting around. It's like, okay, it, it it was, but it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, how did how did you feel about it, Ethan? I I love well that episode. Like I, I agree. Like I think it's insane that got on TV. Yeah, it's and, terrifying. Uh, Still, and uh, I think the whole Bob thing. It's interesting because I I like both those characters, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's very interesting. But it is almost in a way like it's weird in kind of a different way than how the show is weird because the weird the show is more weird in a quirky way yes mm-hmm. where that's kind of it's sort of weird that there's that like supernatural element to it i find yeah but i again i i still love it and obviously the whole so here's a real mythology. question did, did you feel that this was a cheat 
I didn't. No, okay. I, I felt like they were building up to it. And I, I could and, see how people could. That's why I was just I thought I'd bring it, bring it up. And I thought the big reveal was just beyond horrifying. Seeing the image in the mirror and the face going back and forth. I mean, I just it just made me jump out of my seat multiple times. Um, and you know, but that's the thing. Like Twin Peaks, it is fun and funny and quirky and romantic, but it's also frickin' scary. And you know, oh, yeah. and there are those episodes that really do just turn your hair white, like Leland Palmer, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. saying dozy notes. And that dozy. was freaking hilarious. <laughs> but no, the the scene where he kills Maddie, uh, you know, and then he puts the the letter under her finger. Like I was just like, oh my gosh, this is. This is what like the worst nightmares look like. Uh, well, I, was, I think then yeah. to the image when it's the giant appears in the bar and tells Cooper it is happening again. Yeah. I think that's actually the most powerful scene in the entire show. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great moment. Great moment. I love I love when you see Julie Cruz on stage. I love I love those moments too, where it's you know where you actually see her on stage and she's wearing like a like a village people biker hat. <laughs> now, I don't know what my favorite moment in Twin Peaks is. I got too many, but I'll have to think about that. Um, yeah, so from there, uh, okay, so yeah, I guess end of spoilers there. But yeah, that was, uh, I can't say I was disappointed with that because I love the way Ray Wise exits the show. Mm-hmm. I love that scene where he's doused with water and he makes the confession and then he, uh, I thought it was so powerful, so well done. I don't like the Wyndham Myrtle subplot that pops up. Um, they, this new villain character who's meant to be a match for Cooper, and I never thought he was. Because whereas Cooper is very subtle and internal and brilliant, Wyndham Myrtle was like not only mustache-twirling villainy, but he was a master <laughs> of disguise, and his disguises were always so obvious and silly. And he's sitting across the bar from Cooper at the diner, like they're looking at each other, and he doesn't click with them until it's too late. It's like... Come on now. I just, if, if, yeah. if you guys are nemeses on this level, you should know more about how the guy works. Oh, that really reminds me of one thing I've had to bring up in season two when it's real that like Catherine Martell was actually the Japanese guy. Right, right. <laughs> Gosh. Pretty, I think uh, it's actually something that works, though. It's yeah. so ridiculous. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty absurd. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's, there's a few subplots to get into about season two. Um, well, I think the Wind of Merle thing, yeah. I, I think it's, I like it, but I think they the problem is they just they never quite put it in the right place. Like, it takes too long to get to it, I find, where I think it would have given the show a little more of a drive and a little more tension when it was, like, really treading water after the reveal, I found. Yes, yes. Well, I was so dead set against Leo, them trying to make Leo any kind of a sympathetic character. I'm like, the guy's a douchebag. He deserves it. I don't care. Well, I love that this whole thing is like, is he going to come out of his coma or not? Yeah. I, that was a, I love that angle. And, that, and I love how, you know, they're mocking him. They're putting on birthday hats and, you know, just like this, this character who is such a scumbag. They're just, the, the creators are punishing him. The characters are punishing him. I love that he was literally getting his just desserts. Yes, true, true. I think I would have liked the Wyndham Earl subplot. And it's not that this actor did a bad job. He didn't do a bad job. I mean, he certainly went for it. But I always thought, you know what? If they cast somebody who... I mean, I always thought Dennis Hopper. Because obviously, for obvious reasons, we want to see Dennis Hopper pitted against Kyle MacLachlan again. I think that would have been fantastic. Of course, Hopper was too big at the time to do network television. But uh, I would have loved to well, see Well, network t- television had different, a, a different... Uh blight upon it i guess like, right like real actors didn't do television right time. yeah you're right it was still at that point. i mean now it's starting in a tv show for Grand exactly Island. right yeah well, now I, mean, it's different. I think if maybe if david lynch had actually been running the show at that point and he'd called him up being like yo dennis maybe it would have happened but he wasn't like running the show for most of that wasn't he you're right no he at that point you're right he was doing wild at heart and uh mark frost was doing storyville so yeah they were kind of missing an action during that time in the 
the writing kind of took a turn. Um, I, I still, <laughs> you know, I'm not uh, immune to Heather Graham's charms. I always find myself, I've, yeah, I just think she's compulsively watchable even when she's bad or the movie's bad. Um, I can't say I really cared about her character who was brought no? in. Yeah, I don't I don't really understand why Cooper fell in love with her. Like coming after Audrey. Audrey, like, yeah. Like there's no you can never get over Audrey. True. Either make Audrey the unrequited love, but yeah, don't bring in a replacement. That was just that was a mistake. I remember hearing that there was talk of doing a thing like like what's the big thing after Who Killed Laura Palmer? They're talking about Audrey ending up pregnant. And it was a question of who is the dad, you know, and I thought that would be that would have been an interesting way to go. But yeah, the Heather Graham thing again. I like Heather Graham, but I I don't I don't know what the heck she's doing in that show. I don't know what Billy Zane's doing on that show. <laughs> that's oh, the one that's like John what? Justice Wheeler. Ooh. <laughs> and uh, oh, what you call? I mean, I don't mind David Duchovny his appearances because I mean it's Twin Peaks. It's that kind of show where you know he shows up in drag. Well, you know it's it, it's it's the, definitely the show for that, but. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, there's there's there was a I, lot I think of characters. How they handled Josie is like probably the nadir. Is that how you say it? The nadir. Nadir, nadir, nadir I think. Yeah, I've heard it said different series. ways. Like I just think it gets really dull, and I think just the scene where uh, spoiler she's sucked into the doorknob. Yes. Is the worst moment in the entire series. <laughs> like it's so like just unbelievably awful. Like I like it's like what the. You know, for me, the the down point was the pine weasel subplot, which I thought was so <laughs> stupid. Like they made such a big deal about I, these pine. I kind of like. I actually kind of like that dynamic with uh, Lucy, Andy, and what, what, what is it, Dick Tremaine? Yes. Oh gosh. I kind of think it's kind of cute. It's amusing, but I thought it was it just so silly. So silly. I mean, Dick Tremaine is amusing because he's so over the top as a character. But I I always felt kind of bad for Andy actually. Because he's ob- he's obviously so perfect for Lucy, but of course, I mean, if someone like Dick Tremaine is going to give Lucy the time of day, of course she's going to, you know, yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Oh, then uh, I guess we'll, we'll continue talking about it, but we could I guess wrap it up in terms of talking about the narrative. Um, let's talk about that last episode. Ooh. Again, I have no idea how anyone let that up go on TV. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm thrilled that it was that that episode by itself made work watch the entire well, show. Well, I think part watching. of it was that no one was watching the show at that point. <laughs> They're like, ah, so what do we don't care. care. They're just like, whatever. They're just sitting around drinking coffee, eating donuts. It's okay, just throw it on. No one, no one cares. Yeah, that I, that again, I'd use the word terrifying to describe that episode. I thought it was terrifying, and certainly I did 20 years ago. I still find it very disturbing. Um, all this stuff in the Black Lodge with with the other Cooper, I found just just so unnerving. And uh, the final wrap-up, uh, not only was it just such a shocker, but it, it broke my heart. It broke my heart that the show ended that way. Yeah. Um, because obviously, I mean, I love that character so much. And to see that happen to him, I thought that was uh, good yeah. writing, but no question. I, mean, I just thought that that... It was kind just, of a gut shot. I thought it was very cruel. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I don't, don't, like, imagine that if they had gotten to season three, I'm trying to think of what they would have done with that. What I've read, I was just uh, watching the documentary on the Gold Box this morning. Uh, uh, Mark Frost was saying that he wanted to basically deal with the duality because Bob is, you know, like the devil. He's definitive evil and Cooper is, you know, definitively good. So it would have been like this Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing of like Bob coming out and it being Cooper wrestling with the good and evil in him um, and same with Bob. Um, so it would have been like the ultimate, you know, uh, kind of Jekyll and Hyde thing that they would have went with. Um, in a weird way, though, I could almost see them playing it a lot for comedy. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Absolutely. Like I'm, I'm imagining some like, dance sequence in like spider-man 3 at a bar or something <laughs> it would have fit 
<laughs> well, it'd be interesting to see him, like, you know, being, like, the local... Because, you know, he, he settles down at Twin Beaks, and he's, like, a crime fighter now. It'd be interesting to see them go that route of, like, you know, it's almost a Dexter kind of thing. He's yeah. the good, good He's actually guy, the, the, the mastermind evil guy. But right, right, yeah. The, yeah, that'd be interesting. I, I mean, hey, anything to get rid of that Pine Weasel subplot would have made me happy, so... <laughs> yeah. Oh, the worst subplot, actually, is James heading off and that meeting that woman. Ooh. Oh, that's right. That was ridiculous. Yeah. Because at yeah. least the Pine Weasel thing dealt with characters I like. Yeah, and it was continuity. Right, right. Like, oh, my God. Yeah, and I wonder I wonder if that was just one of those subplots that they thought they were going to go somewhere with it and they just never did or they just never got around to it. Um, it's like even the Lenny Van Dolan thing, um, him being the – the you know like the keeper of the diary and all that at least that went somewhere but no you're right you're totally right the james thing it was just it was just more soap opera silliness you know for a show that remember, should have been sorry when uh, uh major briggs was abducted was that yes that was, season- that was season two i'll get you know let me get to that let me jump to that right here um i have this um I've been carrying this around with me for a while. It's uh, Welcome to Twin Peaks and Valleys. This is an article that made the cover of New York Times, and it's basically a speculation about Twin Peaks. And, and uh, this isn't very long. It's kind of a timeline about the highs and lows of the show, and I'll just go through it because it, it addresses that. Uh, September 89, the buzz begins. Connoisseur Magazine runs a cover story calling Twin Peaks the series that will change television. April 8th of 1990, that year, the two-hour pilot becomes the most watched TV movie of the year. April, April 19th, a dancing dwarf appears to Agent Cooper in a dream in what is perhaps the series' aesthetic high point, arguably. June 11th, The Nation magazine, noting that the show's plot hinges on the sale of a sawmill to foreign developers, applauds the series as an expose of the Reagan era. <laughs> August uh, 2nd, Twin Peaks is nominated for 14 Emmys. August 22nd, dietitians grumble publicly about the opulent displays of sugary donuts in the series. <laughs> September 16th, Twin Peaks is snubbed at the Emmys, where it wins only two for costume design and editing. September 30th, first show of the second season, Dupar's Supermarket in Los Angeles sells out its stock of cherry pies. October 1st, David Lynch appears on the cover of Time. October 6th, here we go, Ethan, a subplot is introduced that involves space aliens, which many viewers consider a sure sign that the series has gone haywire. October 7th, The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer makes the New York Times paperback bestseller list. November, Modern Baking, an industry magazine, runs an article titled Donuts, Twin Peaks, the silent killer. November 17th, in what many viewers regard as a cop-out, Laura Palmer's killer is revealed to be the spirit of a man named Bob inhabiting the body of Laura's father. Uh, December 31st, the corpse of Laura Palmer makes People Magazine's list of the 25th most, 25 most intriguing people of the year. February 26th, 1991, Sesame Street has a featurette called Twin Beaks. March 1991, Twin Peaks soundtrack by Angela Badalamente goes gold. April 18th, the last regular episode is broadcast and is one of the least watched shows on television for that week. The show goes on hiatus. May 5th, on his syndicated radio show, Dr. Demento, he broadcasts a song called All We Are Saying Is Give Peaks a Chance by the citizens outraged at the offing of Peaks Cop, a coop rather. And then June 10th, the final double episode of Twin Peaks is aired as a two-hour Sunday night movie. So, and then of course, you know, uh, two years, not two years later, the following year, uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me premieres at the Cannes Film Festival where it's booed, roundly booed. Really? Which is such a change of pace because in 1990, summer of 1990, when the show was still like red hot, David Lynch shows up with Wild at Heart, wins the Palm d'Or, even though it's a controversial win, uh, you know, Wild at Heart, you know, it's a, a very successful film. 
Um, you know, and then just two years later, he shows up with Fire Walk with me. It's booed. It does not win. It's one of the most bashed films at the festival that year. It was basically the Antichrist of 1992. Wow. Well, I just wanted to get back. I mentioned Major Briggs. I forgot to bring bring him up in one of my favorite characters. Because he's, again, he's just one of those, like, earnest guys who just has such an awesome presence. That, like, mm-hmm. another one of my favorite scenes is when he tells Bobby about that dream he has. Yeah. That scene is amazing. Yeah, that's good stuff there. I thought it was funnier earlier on when he's trying to talk to him about dealing with, with, with the day of the funeral. And he's trying to cope. He's trying to relate to his son. And it's just failing so miserably. I thought it was hilarious. I think what, if I had to pick one other than Cooper, my favorite character would have to be the man from another place. Um, <laughs> because he's never explained, essentially. He's kind of the gatekeeper or the overseer or the host of the Black Lodge. And... He knows everything, but he you know he speaks it backwards in subtitles, and he's so freaking cool, and he's a great dancer. I don't, I love the man from another place. I, I want to bring up the whole d- the dream sequence parts, with, especially featuring him, because initially I'm like, why can't you just have him talk? Come on, whatever. And I'm like, you think back to your dreams, and you're like, this is honestly is probably one of the more the, the more representative depictions of a dream on on a, on screen, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. I, every time that the, you know both times that comes up, it's just wow. Amazing. Do your dreams look like that, Ethan? Usually more Tom Green. But. <laughs> nice. Wow. No, I, I love those scenes too, Dave. Uh, they just, I mean, those scenes are just so thrilling because all of a sudden the whole thing becomes so cinematic. I mean, you understand why some shows are filmed in Letterboxd, and this is like one of those shows where it's like you could watch it on a big screen because it is so distinct and weird. It was one of these things where not long after Twin Peaks came out, there were, there were a lot of TV shows before DVD were being released on VHS. And, I, you know, and, and I'm someone who watched Cheers and MASH and Friends, but I never understood the need to own them. You know, never, because I always thought after a while they became kind of interchangeable. Good, but but not great. But Twin Peaks was one of those shows where I completely got it. Like, yes, I want every single VHS copy, and yes, I need to see this on widescreen. I want to hear directors' commentaries uh, because every episode, and seriously, even the bad ones, I felt they they had such a strong personality of the filmmakers and the characters, and yeah. I was crazy. I was surprised to see Diane Keaton's name come up as one of the uh, directors. Yes, yes, Diane Keaton. Episode is brutal. <laughs> I'm not saying it was amazing. I was just like, "Wow, okay." Did she do the one that has the flashlight war between the brothers, which I thought was such a cool image? Do you remember that one, where the brothers is like when they're little kids? I think it's Ben Horn and talking about he and his brother. They had like a flashlight war when they were kids, so. and it's this it beautiful, yeah. beautiful. I don't know if she did that. Tim Hunter, the director of River's Edge, directed an episode, a couple episodes. I thought they were really great. Um, Caleb Dashnell is always. Papa, who, uh, of course, filmed The Passion of the Christ. He directed a few episodes, and his wife is, is uh, Bobby Briggs' mother in the show. Um, yeah, yeah, good stuff. Cool. Well, let's move on to Firewalk with me. I did not get to see this either. I, okay. I couldn't get it in time from Netflix, so... Well, I mean, I think you know. I think Ethan and I know all too well why this this movie didn't go over when it came out because it's not what Peaks fans want. It it lacks the light touch that sometimes countered the darkness. Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, with the exception of the opening prologue with Chester Desmond played by Chris Isaac. Um, with the exception of that, it's it's dark the whole way through. In fact, I think it's one of the hardest movies that that Lynch has made. I think it's one of the hardest movies of his to watch alongside Lost Highway in terms of how brutal and wow. dark and and, and 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 I love the film, no question. But go ahead, Ethan. Oh, I was going to say too. I think, um, and this is part of why it was pants so much. I think it is one of his most self indulgent films in yes. terms of like imagery and. But I, I think it's all amazing. Everything he does in it. 
You know, it, it took me a while to to dig it. Honestly, um, I missed it when it was in theaters. It never came to Maui. Um, it was on Oahu for like a week, and it was in most theaters for like one week, and then it left. Um, I got it on VHS. And early in the film where it becomes a Twin Peaks movie, where it finally becomes a Twin Peaks movie about 30 minutes in, and the music plays, and you see Laura Palmer going to her class, but then you see her go to the restroom and doing a hit of cocaine, I, I hit the stop button. I'm like, I don't want to see this. I don't want to see Laura Palmer this way. I don't want to see her murdered. I couldn't do it. And it wasn't until I was in college uh, hmm. that I started to go back and watch Twin Peaks, and I finally mustered the courage to watch Blue Velvet, which is a movie I avoided watching for years because I heard how horrifying it was and I loved it, that I finally went back to Firewalk with me. And, uh, yeah, it, no question, it's self-indulgent. There's even a line in the movie um, that a few critics have jumped on where a character says, I am as blank as a fart. And I thought, oh, Lynch, you shouldn't have said that. That's like instant criticism for your movie. Um, but there are set pieces in this film that are so extraordinary. There's one where Laura Palmer literally walks into a painting that's on her wall that I thought is dazzling. Um, the scene with David Lynch is, uh, not David Lynch, the scene with David Bowie is impossible to describe, but I'm so grateful to see. And every time I see that scene, I love it because it's so weird. And it has this bizarre cracked uh uh, logic, if you can call that to it. Um, I do love the opening. Um, I love all the bits with Chris Isaac and Kiefer Sutherland. Um, it, it, the story is is that the movie was supposed to be all about Agent Cooper, a prequel to him coming to Twin Peaks. And either because he didn't want to do it or because he was too busy, Kyle MacLachlan only has a cameo in the film. So Agent Cooper became Chester Desmond, the character played by Chris Isaac. And I love Isaac in this movie. Um, that that witty patter is there. I love the sequence at the airplane hangar where the girl comes out, does this interpretive dance, and that holds all the, all the keys to all the mysteries. It's just about interpreting it, which is kind of like David Lynch commenting to his audience. Um, yeah, I, I think... The first 20 minutes of the film are unquestionably brilliant. When it becomes a Twin Peaks movie, it, it not only gets very indulgent, but it becomes really, really, really brutal. And all the things that the television show insinuated are there graphically. Um, although despite how hard to watch it becomes and how dark it becomes, the sequence after you see Laura Palmer being seduced by Bob and then Bob ends up being her father, the scene where they're at the breakfast table together, and, you know, the whole, the, essentially the monster that is her father is sitting directly across from her, I think is perfect and brilliant. And it's all about how the heart of evil is existing, you know, at this breakfast table out in the opening right across from you at your table. And I think that's what the whole show is about. You know, the whole idea that like, you know, utter good, but also utter evil can exist in this seemingly banal and peaceful and perfect and beautiful haven. Well, it's funny bringing it up because my, um, friend Justine, who's very knowledgeable about film, and she's in film studies with me. She hasn't even seen the show, but Fire Walk With Me is her favorite David Lynch film. Wow. And uh, she, but she's a huge horror fan, and she's big into, like, the subtext of horror. And I think that's why she likes it so much, is because there's sort of that, there is that element about, you know, having the monster at home and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's brilliantly realized in film. And I think... Like I said, the movie is very self-indulgent, but I welcome it. And I think it has some of Lynch's best images in any film. Like when, um, I think it's like Leland and Bob are like floating in the Black Lodge. Yeah. And the dwarf yeah. is like, he points at him, he like draws blood out of him. Yeah. It's one of the most brilliant images in all of his films. And two, there's a scene where you see like kind of inside, not the Black Lodge, you know, the, um, above the convenience store or whatever. They're all like, all those like spirits inside just sitting to themselves. Yes. Is, and the Jürgen Prock now has the cameo <laughs> as the woodsman. <laughs> but it's like, like that terrifies me just thinking about it. And uh, yeah, I, 
it, I find it a very, like you said, I think it is one of the most depressing movies I've ever seen, but I, I can't get it. I can never get it out of my head. And, you know, it, it's, it's one of those Lynch films I go back and I watch a lot. In fact, I think I might have seen, I think I've seen it more than any of his other films because of those scenes that are so good. And, and, and I don't think it's a bad film at all. It just, it is really, really hard to watch. And the self-indulgence, I mean, there's a sequence towards the end of the movie where there's a, it's what, a close-up of a mouth-eating pudding? Is that what it is? Corn. Yeah. Corn. Excuse me. Cream corn. And it's interspersed uh, sporadically in a certain sequence of the movie. And, you know, you just go, okay, this is Lynch doing whatever the frick he wants. And, you know, like, if it means anything, he knows. He's not telling anybody. Um, but, you know, like, even the murder of Laura Palmer, which is such a nightmare to watch and such a horrible scene, um, I appreciate that Lynch is taking that idea back from what it became. It became very romanticized, the picture of Laura Palmer wrapped in plastic. It became like this very safe, friendly, iconic TV image, and he took that away from it. Um, and he, he made the, the murder of Laura Palmer to be the most horrible, gut-wrenching, terrible thing, which it, which it should be, no question. Um, and the rest of the film is probably which, which is the most romanticized and fanciful. Uh, but no question, the murder of Laura Palmer, I mean, that's, I mean, I've heard this movie described straightforward. It's just a horror film. And, and I don't disagree with that at all. It's certainly a horrifying film. Oddly enough, it was very big in Japan. Um, apparently because uh, a lot You've of... You've seen Audition. It makes sense. Well, I mean, the whole well, idea uh, of... Twin Peaks was pretty big in Japan in general. Yeah, and, yeah, in general, yeah, and all, all over the world. Um, but apparently um, a sociological uh, implication was that, you know, the idea of these young girls being abused by their fathers or, or being sexually abused by people around her, and you basically see Laura Palmer, like her innocence, getting just drained from her during the course of the film. And the movie talks about that, as the show did too, but the film is very specifically about her really dark journey and, and uh, you know, the difference between being a girl, you know, experimenting with being bad and being a girl who essentially just kind of doesn't even feel anything anymore. And, and you know, you just, I, I think Cheryl Lee is spectacular in the film and I think Ray Wise is incredible in the film. I think those two performances are extraordinary. Well, there's another scene. I think it's one of the best scenes in a David Lynch film where they're they're driving in a car and yeah. the one our man oh. comes in. He's like honking the horn. Yes, I think that scene evokes like doom, like almost better than any film I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's an amazing scene. That the whole film is very underrated because uh, no question, Blue Velvet is a masterpiece and Mulholland Drive is brilliant and Elephant Man is 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 underrated and so is the Straight Story. But I think I think I really do think Fire Walk with Me is better than Lost Highway. Um, it's better than Dune, though most movies are. Um, I, I do think it is one of his best and most underrated films. Um, you may know this, Ethan. Do you know that there was a the original cut of the film was five hours long? Yeah, and we'll never see those scenes. Probably. Isn't isn't that sad? Um, I remember when this film was first announced, and there was a movie preview, and they had a still of the movie in a magazine. I wish I still had it, and it showed Kiefer Sutherland um, interacting with the David Bowie characters. Like, oh, I would have loved to have seen that. And I guess there's this really funny and long comical fist fight between Chris Isaac and another character. There are characters from the movie, I guess, including Joan Chen's character and a few of the other side characters who had uh, cameo roles in the film. And then uh, there were supposed to be elements in Firewalk with me that uh, got audiences ready for season three of Twin Peaks, which is why um, Heather Graham is briefly in Firewalk with me because I guess you know she was going to be a reoccurring character in season three. And uh, this is another thing I've—I don't know if this has been confirmed or not—but apparently the woman, the name of the woman, I don't remember the name of the woman that David Bowie says in in the movie during his his crazy Judy. Model. Yeah, Judy, Judy, thank you. Uh, apparently she was a big character in season 3 and there was going to be a whole character or ar- that whole character was going to have its own arc and never went anywhere but there she is being being declared by David Bowie in that one of the weirdest cameo scenes ever. 
I think I I'd always kind of struggled with the ending of this movie in that I just I felt it didn't I didn't like I liked it but I never it, I never quite felt there was resolution but I think I watched the movie again last year and I don't know I found the final image to be perfect like it 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 was like yeah I, it it's over and I'm I'm happy with it just him standing over her yeah I don't know I just felt completely content with it I, I and I completely agree with you the last time I saw it I think I got kind of teary about it I thought it was very moving strangely enough um, because that sums up the whole series. I mean, it's always been about Cooper's compassion and his compassion for Laura Palmer when no one else would go for it. I mean, if he if he hadn't shown up in Twin Peaks, there's no way that mystery would have been solved. Um, even with the good people in Twin Peaks, there's no question. I mean, Cooper is the reason that the mystery was solved. And I think there is something very moving about that final image in the show. And I love the opening image too, where it's a television set that gets a hammer thrown into it. I mean, symbolism. Exactly. Lynch is like, screw it. It's not the TV show. It's perfect. I mean, you know, then of course the horrifying scream follows and you realize later on why that, that scene's there. But uh, no, again, brilliant touches, definitely an underrated film and definitely worthy of rediscovery. Cool. Uh, one last thing I wanted to mention. Yeah. You can see this online. Uh, David Lynch has appeared on uh, Jay Leno many times, and there's a, a video of him going on promoting this. Huh. Jay Leno just comes off like the biggest cock. He's like, yeah, he's got this new movie, Fuck, Walk With Me, and trust me, it is weird. <laughs> and then like, uh, he's interviewing him, and he's like, they're just like talking about what he did this summer. He's like, yeah, I, I went fishing this summer, Jay. <laughs> and then they get to the movie and he's like, and he's like, now, now this is weird. And he's like, ah, there are abstract areas of it. Yes. And he's like, no, it's more than that. It's weird. I just like, <laughs> I'd love to see that. I didn't know that that's on YouTube. Yeah. I will find that. I've never seen that. I, you know, when this thing came out, I mean, it opened the same weekend as Honeymoon in Vegas, and like, I didn't see any promos for it. Like, I, I didn't see the trailer until years later. I, um, I, I had the poster for a while. I actually had the double-sided movie poster because a friend of mine owned a theater and actually got a copy of it. But uh, yeah, it's just one of these films. Like, I, I was so excited to see the film, and it never came to Hawaii. I never got the opportunity to see it properly. And it's one of these films. If it ever comes, I suspect one of these days it'll come to Denver and like a you know, a reissue screening. I'll definitely see it because I, I really do want to experience this thing on the big screen as, as hard as that will be at times. Keith, if you're listening. Keith, bring Firewalk with me to Denver, <laughs> please, buddy. There you go. Do me a solid. So, so I think we all say that this is a show well worth checking out. If you haven't seen it, it's on Netflix streaming. Uh, Firewalk with me, you have to get on DVD. But Next to Twin Peaks, it's probably, and, and well, you know, I guess I shouldn't put it next to anything. Um, but I mean, for me, it's like Twilight Zone and Moonlighting and, and it's just in the Wonder Years. It's just one of these shows that not only is it so much a part of my upbringing, but it's uh, I think it's one of the greatest TV shows ever created, and uh, there's nothing else like it. No question, without Twin Peaks, we would not have had Lost. We would not have had like so many of these great shows that not only are quirky and take chances, but are extremely cinematic. Um, a lot of the the shows that came after Twin Peaks, like like Picket Fences or even like Wild Palms, they were very Twin Peaksy and kind of you know trying to capture Twin Peaks, but in a more accessible mainstream way. But the shows that are out now. Um, I think really reflects the the impact that Twin Peaks had in terms of like uncompromised, clearly the creation of the writer and the creator and in total control. And even like even the really uh, collected, calculated cool of Mad Men is also a, a, a Twin Peaks aspect. I mean, this this show is, I think, not only one of the most influential shows that ever aired, but also one of the greatest easily. Cool. Yeah, I like something like, sorry, we're just no, dragging no, this on, ahead. but something like, example, I think maybe The Wire is probably a better show just because it's more consistent. Sure, sure. 
but but Twin Peaks to me nothing like I find there's no other TV show that I find is like it like just in terms of watching I always feel like I'm watching a movie when I'm watching it yeah, and that's, yeah. Sort of a, that's sort of sometimes a problem I have with TV because because people are really into TV now and like there's a lot of you know Breaking Bad Mad Men yes. 30 Rock Parks and Rec Community like all great shows but there's still just never a moment like like you say when you're watching like uh, like a great film like you're watching like Blue Velvet there's never quite that moment I find where like music and imagery syncs up and you feel something kind of deeply powerful inside you yeah you get a kind of that goosebumps but I find with Twin Peaks I always got that definitely yeah that's great that's great um yeah we'll leave right. it at that cool okay so uh, yeah, ho- hope y'all enjoyed that. Go check it out if you haven't had a chance. It's definitely the most one of the most unique shows I've ever seen, that, or that you will ever see. Period. Easily. Fire walk with me. There it is. You got your you got your impression out. It's my one impression. There it is. All right. So what's hitting theaters this week, sir? Fifty Fifty, the new film starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Seth Rogen. Um, again, I've, I, I've seen I saw this it, film. I saw You've it seen, three weeks ago. I saw it like two months ago. Um, I can't talk about it, though I want to make it a point that I am mentioning this film first out of all the other films. But Ethan, you could, yeah, you can talk about it. What did you think of it, Ethan? It was pretty good. Okay, very good. So Ethan recommends it. I'm mentioning it first out of all the films coming out next week. Take that as a hint. Uh, Dream House, which is supposed to have a pretty wild twist ending, although I feel like the trailer gave it away. This stars Daniel Craig and Rachel Weisz. Of course, this is the film they, they hooked up on when they made it together. It also stars Naomi Watts. Supposed to be a pretty good ghost story. This is the movie, if the next Aronofsky flick sucks, we can blame this one. <laughs> uh, hey, <laughs> Do you I like that? Th- you like I hadn't that? thought of that. Very good, Dave. Um, what's your number? One of the two Chris Evans movies that are out right now that nobody knows is out. Uh, the other is a film called Puncture that Chris Evans did where I guess he plays a coke addict and apparently he's really good in it. It's like it's supposed to be a really great startling performance from him. Captain America's fallen far. Well, <laughs> sorry. And you know, we had never talked about this and I won't say much about this now, but you know, I didn't like Captain America. You didn't? I didn't like it. No, oh. I'm like the one person I know I didn't like it. Anyway, um, surprise, surprise. What's Your Number is a film that unlike Puncture, uh, this stars Anna Ferris and Chris Evans. It's a romantic comedy I suspect this thing is going to be on DVD quite quick. In limited release, Courageous, another film that will be on DVD very, very quickly. Um, this is the latest faith-based film that was made, and apparently it's it's uh, it's up there with uh, classics like Fireproof and uh, Left Behind 3. Just don't bring up that other one because nothing can be on that level. Okay, I won't. Take Shelter, <laughs> the critically acclaimed film. I'm dying Hell to see yeah. this thing. I, Have you seen this yet? No, I'm just super excited. Me too, man. Me too. Jessica Chastain and in a critically acclaimed performance, Michael Shannon. Jake Shelter looks terrific. Uh, can't wait to see this thing. And then uh, a movie that's it's going to be playing in Denver soon. Limited release uh, nationwide. They'll hope it's good. Tucker and Dale versus Evil starring Alan Tudyk. It sounds interesting. It's got a really fun idea for the movie. Uh, please correct me if I get this wrong. Do you wrong want me to just do it? Go ahead. Okay. A couple of hillbillers are living in the woods minding their own business bunch of uh, preppy kids come in on spring break and, and attack them so they have to kill them and they're like crap we're gonna get framed as serial killers <laughs> it's a fun idea hope it, it works it is on DVD next week uh, currently in theaters right now in fact it's the number one movie in America I, w- I really wonder if Disney's gonna rush to put it on DVD so quickly because for Pete's sake they got a gold mine here they're making money off a movie they've already paid for The Lion King the Diamond Edition <laughs> Um, apparently one of the most fun movies of the year. I'm dying to see this because I hear it's great from everybody. Fast Five. It's gotten great reviews. Even it is People fun. who don't like these movies. It is stupid. You didn't see it? No, I, I'm like the one guy who didn't see Fast Five. No. Nope. Oh, it was pretty good. Yeah, you I, yeah, to see I, it, sir. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I will see it. Buck, uh, apparently the real-life horse whisperer film, a documentary, gotten great reviews. 
Uh, the very mixed Scream Four from director writer Wes Craven. Great five minutes. Open yeah. If it's is it five five ten minutes yeah. The opening sequence of the movie brilliant. Rest of it you've seen before. Beauty and the Beast, one of the greatest animated films ever made, available on a five disc combo set. Oh, that's like the, the 3D and everything, isn't it? I guess I so. so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Friday Night Lights, the complete series, good show, good show. Can't say I was a big fan, but good show. Uh, Disney Nature, African Cats, this year's uh, Earth Day film. Yeah. African Cats. What else we got? Sarah Palin, The Undefeated. So, it kind of the antithesis of the other Sarah Palin movie yes. coming out. This is this is Sarah Palin like this is like her. This is the one that came out up in Denver, I think. This is like her John Kerry going up river. You know, this is like her like like look how awesome I am documentary. Yeah, this did play in Denver for for a very brief amount of time for like a week. Yeah. Yes. Friday the Thirteenth, the Ultimate Collection. These are the special editions of Friday the Thirteenth Part One through Eight. So that is the Crystal Lake film all the way up to Jason Takes Manhattan. And apparently, you can get it in a special case that includes a hockey mask. <laughs> so if you don't have this, you know. Who who you are and who am I kidding I'm probably going to buy this Honeymooners The Lost Episodes one of the greatest sitcoms of all time with Jackie Gleason uh, The Lost Episodes from 1951 to 1957 Pee Wee Herman The Pee Wee Herman Show on Broadway this is the show that Marty saw twice my buddy Ben actually saw on Broadway apparently it's spectacular and HBO reportedly did a terrific job filming this so if you're a Pee Wee fan like I am got to check this out one of Jack's favorite films of last year I believe Submarine great yes. film I, I like Submarine a lot I can't great wait film. for it very good. It's finally out. Um, man, it, you know, you might as well just get this with the Pee Wee Herman set. Weird Al Yankovic Live, the Alpocalypse Tour. I have a buddy who saw oh, when he yeah. came to town and said that it was really impressive. They did like 10 different costume changes during the concert. I've seen Al, Julie and I have seen Al in concert twice, and it's still our favorite show. We love, freaking love I'm Al. I have to try to go next I don't. I, I love Weird Al, and I remember he came, he was, it was like four years ago, he was in town, but no one wanted to go with me, so I didn't end up going. Ah. Oh. That's awful, man. That is a sad story. Next time, next time, man. Yeah, they, apparently, apparently, uh, this has got a good review too. Uh, Entertainment Weekly said this was a really good uh, concert film. So, so hopefully, it'll capture the experience of seeing it. Awesome. Uh, Elvira's Haunted Hills. This is a reissue of a film she did years ago. This is a theatrical film starring her and and Richard O'Brien. Yes, the title is a is a pun. Elvira's Haunted Hills. Uh, two new episodes of Elvira's Movie Macabre, featuring a double feature of her, her show. So check that out if you're an Elvira fan. On the other end of the holiday spectrum, the Peanuts Holiday Collection. To, to be ready for with the Great Pumpkin Charlie Brown. Great yeah. Pumpkin Charlie Brown and Great uh, and Charlie Brown Christmas, the two that you need. There is also the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving, which I didn't think was as good. And it's the Great uh, um, It's Christmas Time Again Charlie Brown, which is not good. Let's see. And I'll I'll wait for the crap title of the week. Uh, Blu-ray. I'm Blu-ray man. This is quite the list here, and I'll try to get through it. Uh, Quentin Tarantino Essentials, Pulp Fiction, and Jackie Brown available on Blu-ray. Dead Alive, one of the great early Peter Jackson films, and really one of the most disgusting films ever made. So it's one of the few movies that almost made me lose it. Watch it with friends. See how much guacamole you can eat before you can no longer eat oh, guacamole. Dude. <laughs> Do it. Or Do pudding. it. Pudding. 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 There you go. Uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, one of the best Tim Burton movies and one of the best films of the 80s. I love Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Perfect little comedy. Cinema Paradiso. Man, first date I ever went on was to Cinema Paradiso. Cinema Paradiso, the beautiful Italian film, one of the great movies about loving movies. Life is Beautiful, the Academy Award-winning Italian film from Roberto Benigni, in which he won the Academy Award and said he wanted to make love to everyone in a river. This is true. <laughs> that was funny. The Cider House Rules, the Lassa Hallstrom adaption, adaptation rather, excuse me, of uh, the John Irving novel starring Michael Caine in an uh, Academy Award-winning performance. Do you guys like Cider House? I saw it when it came out, and I remember I, I remember barely anything about it except the classic line, 
Good night, you princes of Maine, you kings of New England. Man, if I'd known about that, I would have brought up the Futurama joke where, where Bender does a riff on that. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wrong because it's a bunch of orphans. He's he's he took in a bunch of orphans to get the uh, food stamps to get the welfare money. <laughs> Did you like the movie? Yeah, yeah have it's you seen movie. it? Yeah. You've seen it. Okay. Yeah. okay, I thought it was good too. Not great. I didn't think it was best picture. But exactly. It was good. It's it's a good movie. The Walking Dead season one available on Blu-ray. A reissue, a double dipping on a TV season before the second season can even come out. Stay classy, Lionsgate. <laughs> Ken Burns Prohibition. Uh, <laughs> Ken Burns, you know, one of the great documentary filmmakers, uh, making another exhaustive and exhausting to watch but definitive uh, documentary. This one about the Prohibition era. That'll be really interesting, I'm sure. Planet Earth, speaking of an exhausting and exhaustive but essential documentary, beautiful film, uh, narrated wonderfully by Sigourney Weaver, incredible photography. No, this is the Richard Attenborough version. It is. Oh, yeah. this is the this, this is, is the, the good UK version. version. Yeah. Oh wow. It has all the footage that, that it has all the bonus features and stuff that they didn't include on the U.S. version that they did on the U.K. edition. Oh shoot, that's even better. So yeah. screw so the American another, version. It's another that. another double dip because yeah, okay. <laughs> movie that doesn't get a lot of love in this episode, although I I kind of like this movie even though it's got so many problems. Tim Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Though I still the think the teaser, movie. the teaser trailer much better than watching the actual film. So maybe you just want to save your time and watch the teaser trailer. Almost Famous, the bootleg cut, which has the famous uh, commentary between Cameron Crowe and his mother. Apparently the bootleg cut is a better film, if that's possible, because Almost Famous is a pretty solid film. Available on Criterion, Harakiri, Hara I'm hoping, hoping I'm saying that right, and uh, Pierre Pasolini's Solo, <laughs> now in its Blu-ray glory. Wow, because you need to see... I'm not even going to get into that. Okay. I don't know why... Oh, well. Uh, speaking of shocking, Uli Adele's Last Exit to Brooklyn, starring Jennifer Jason Lee. Shocking, shocking film. Um, yeah, that's that's a tough film, but Man Alive, great performances. Not in the same ballpark. Space Jam, starring Michael Jordan and Bugs Bunny. Oh, yeah. I'd like to revisit that. I Yeah, we should do an episode on Space Jam. I like Space Jam when it came out. I don't know if it really holds up, but 15 years ago, it was pretty we, funny. We could do that episode next week. I'm down. Yeah, Space Jam episode next week. Let's okay. do it. We're doing do you want to do Space Jam and Looney Tunes back in action? So it would be like the Looney Tunes episode? Sure. All right. I'm down. Are you down, Ethan? Sure. All okay. right. All right. <laughs> hey, it's a Joe Dante movie. Come I on. Know, Joe Dante. I know. And there are parts of it that are great. Yes, great parts. Uh, no great parts in Deck the Hall starring Matthew, Mc- uh, Matthew McConaughey. No, here's the thing. <laughs> I, I propose we rename that to Josh's title for it for all time. Deck My Balls. There it is. Deck My Balls stars Matthew Broderick and Danny DeVito. I just remember Josh telling me that uh, he was in Hollywood. I don't know if he went with you. Did he go with you to the fountain thing? No, it was me and Alex. And yes, all yeah, the press people were sneaking would... down to the Deck the Halls one because they had a full Christmas dinner. So there was, yes. They went down to the Deck, the, the deck My Balls um junket food room stole the food and then came back up to the fountain because one. the dick my balls people as it was explained to me they had like you know turkey and because it and, was a thanksgiving yes yeah, it was, so it was a like a full-on like thanksgiving slash christmas meal that they 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 had for all the journalists and whatever so people were sneaking down there and getting like this delicious meal while like you know. I, I seem to remember a certain mr ferracci doing that yes I, I just remember uh, Danny DeVito's uh, interview on The View promoting it where he was drunk. I remember that too. Man, yeah, that was nuts. And although much funnier than anything in the movie, which I did end up seeing, by the way. It's uh, it's kind of like if they ever made a bad straight-to-DVD sequel to Jingle All the Way, that's exactly what it's like. Instead Wasn't of Jingle since, All the Way already a bad D- direct-to-DVD single? No, 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 no. That played in theaters. It made money. I, I know. I'm just being, I'm, I meant the quality. So, yeah. the Turbo Man <laughs> All the scenes with Schwarzenegger and Sinbad, man, they are deadly. But like, it's worse in Deck the Halls. Same idea. Good? No, no. 
Now, in fact, there are no scenes in Deck the Halls that are even as clever as the scene with the the ninja Santas in James Belushi's Secret Santa Workshop. No good. And then uh, good stuff. Come on. <laughs> I've seen Deck Deck the Halls once. I will watch Jingle All the Way again because it does have the line where where Schwarzenegger's on the phone with with Phil Hartman, and Phil Hartman's like, "Your wife's cookies are delicious," and Schwarzenegger's like, "Put that cookie down." Love that. Frosty the Snowman, available on uh, on Blu-ray. Frosty the Snowman, great. Crap, I forgot to watch the Wise Show. It premiered this week. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll watch it for the next week. So Frosty the Snowman with Jimmy Durante. Finally, sorry, last one. I promise. Our crap title of the week. This was pretty easy. Guys Gone Wild. Bad Boys Explode. Unrated. <laughs> I'd like it noted for the record that Barry found that one. Usually, I find the awful titles, but that one's all. Wait, awesome. sorry, sorry. What what is this? It's called Guys Gone Wild. Bad Boys Explode. Unrated. What, what? What is it? Um, I it's could, girls gone wild, but guys, pretty much. From, yeah, I'm wh- guessing. Which is like, why would you want to watch guys go wild? I mean, how wild can guys go? And is it anything we haven't seen before? And like, is anything to, you haven't seen on Tosh already? I'm just gonna. Are say they gonna it. like flash their chestices? I mean, who cares? You know, are they gonna moon the camera? Who cares? You know, they're gonna. No, I have a dance. you're gonna be seeing. Uh, that's, well, that's one way to put it. Well, I mean, like right. they already have a movie like this. It's called Jackass. You know, why do we want to see guys gone wild? All you gotta, you know, and this is a guy. This is like jackass without knoxville and in the midget ryan dunn even wait oh sorry too soon okay <laughs> yeah all right well that's been an interesting episode <laughs> good times if you want to shoot us an email by all means do you can email us at podcast barry dave or ethan all at screengeeks.com of course i'm a slacker i don't have the phone number up right now so i'm frantically trying to find it uh, here it is. Okay, it is. Come on, you little goober. All right, 719-695-0706. We'll play it on the air. We'll respond. You can make fun of us. I'm going to call it two weeks left in the uh, voicemail contest. Wow, I was going to do a different song for an outro, but I guess we should yeah, just let you do that. Um, <laughs> next week, Space Jam and Looney Tunes back in action. Yes, we're actually going to do it, kids. Until then, this is Dave. This is Audrey Horn. This is Andy. <laughs>